This is Shaka Ward Speak. Hey, welcome to Shaka Ward Speak. We are back for 2021. Uh, thank you all for joining us. I'm here, as always, with my wonderful co-host, Ryan Leterio. Hello. And we are here today with... Uh, a longtime friend of both of us, uh, we've had the pleasure to know, um, and continue to have the pleasure to know. So we've got Abigail Giuseppe with us today. Uh, she is an illustrator, um, and apparently a 19th century spinster, which we'll get into later. But that's a rumor, though. She. Yeah. <laughs> the question is, who started the rumor? That's the thing. That's what we want to find out. Yeah, who it's started like a, this? I mean, it's self created. It's in. A, I was gonna say it's in. Your, it's in your bio on Instagram. So it's yeah. almost like one of those things where, after a team loses a championship really badly, like like snarky things show up on their Wikipedia page by the opposing fans. Yeah. Um, you know, is it one of those things? You had a friend pick up your yeah. phone one day and just throw it into your, your bio or, uh, you know, I love to undermine my own bio. I love to <laughs> hack my own stuff. And it's the best. yeah, it's the best. Cause if you can do it. Yeah. I'm all about slanderous ad campaigns about myself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey, if you can overcome your own terrible yeah, words, it's like, dude, if I can do place. it, then you can't do it to me. So that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are, uh, you know, we're super excited. Uh, you know, it's been hopefully a good holiday season for everybody. Um, happy to kind of get back into it. 2021, um, it's looking like it's about to one up 2020. <laughs> 2021, right, 2021 said, hold my beer. It did. It did. Yeah, I saw uh, a, like a great hold meme. My four yeah. <laughs> Jesus. 21, 2021 is like, we're about to go into a decade. Yeah, well, dude, I uh, saw this fantastic meme the other day, and it was uh, like um, the Joker talking to... Yes, Ant, I saw that. And it was like, you know... Let me show you around. <laughs> let me show you around. And it's like, yeah, here we go. Take a good look. Um, but, you know, hey, uh, as always, if there's uh, one constant thing in your life, it is that uh, Ryan and I will be supplying you the plenty, of, plenty of satellite brain debris. Yes. Um, we'll also bring in some amazing, fantastic artists and designers uh, who can uh, talk to you about all the things they're up to, what's going on, and what life looks like uh, on their little spot of the planet. So we're really happy to have you with us, Abby. Thank you so much for taking some time out to talk with us uh, out of your, your busy schedule with some of your uh, fantastic clients you're working with. Oh, um, yeah. So um, I guess, you know, we can just jump right into it and uh, get into the conversation. So um, on the show, we always like to, you know, start with kind of talking about where somebody came from, what the origin story was. So, uh, you know, take us as far back as you like. Uh, how how did you get on this path to become a I professional? I thought you were going to say, how did you get on this planet? <laughs> let's go back. Let's All go right, back. let's go back so far. How did you get on this planet? Let me take you back to 1997. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, like, how did you start down this path of professional illustrator? Um, well, I, no surprise here, probably from, from most creative type people, I really liked drawing as a kid. Um, and I had a younger brother who is the exact opposite of me in that he, he has a genius level IQ. He's brilliant, but he loves math, science, and I like everything that's not math and science. Mm -hmm. And so growing up, kind of a way that we would connect is, you know, we would, you know, play together, make up stories, things like that. Um, but I would draw for him. And so if we created some like characters and he was describing them to me, I'd be like, well, I got the superpower. I can draw it for you nice. and um, would draw comics for him, all sorts of different things like that and would like charge him for the comics. Yes. So I'd be I like 25 cents a page, you know, <laughs> and then I would kill off characters. And if he got upset about it, I'd be like, well, that's five cents to re resurrect them from the dead. <laughs> yeah. So um, started kind of with that growing up. Um, and then in middle school and high school, it just kind of continued. And the only sort of context with which I understood art was either like you are a fine painter or you are doing cartoons and you animate or maybe mm. draw something, but mm -hmm. I didn't really know what. 
And so for pretty much most of my childhood, I was like, I'm going to be an animator at Pixar. Like I want to be a concept designer or something like that um, because it was the only way I could kind of understand how I could translate the things I like to do into a profession. And then in high school, I got really into theater, which some people tell me they can tell I was a theater kid. And to them, I say, how dare you? But <laughs> How got, dare you? For real. Very theatrically, you say it to them. How dare you? Oh, God. Maybe I shouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Gareth did. Uh, but yeah, I got really into theater and I was doing props design for every single show in high school. And then I was acting in every single show. I, um, I was even in the musicals, which... Lord help the people who had to listen to that. Um, and then I was also doing some um, uh, publicity stuff with my friend where I was designing graphics for our p- playbills and everything. And I started to get kind of good at it, and I was doing it in the summer. And then my uh, director in high school and my theater teacher in high school had me come and like work on shows that they were doing and local productions and things. And so I was still doing art, but theater kind of took over. Sure. And my senior year, I was in a play, and apparently I was pretty good in it and my director and producer at the high school pulled me aside and was like you should go to college for this and not for art and I was like oh Christ like I'd been thinking about it but I didn't want anyone to like push me to do theater because I mean if art school is like a joke to to normal people then like what is theater (laughs) (laughs) what is theater (laughs) and so like I talked about with my parents and they were like yeah you know why not and I had already applied to to art schools I actually had already um gotten my portfolio accepted to school there at Institute of Chicago and I was like I'm gonna move to a city and like take on so much like student debt like it's gonna be awesome and um I was like nope we're gonna switch to theater and I didn't particularly know if I wanted to do props or acting or what but um all of the auditions were pretty much done at that point for theaters and so I was like or for theater programs and so I was looking at what I could apply for I applied to five schools one of which was Juilliard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have auditioned at Juilliard. I can say that. And it was a horrible experience. <laughs> I'm sure you're not the only person oh. that can say their audition at Juilliard was a horrible experience. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> but the only school that I applied for in-state was JMU. So mm-hmm. I went to JMU and I very quickly found out that it just wasn't for me in doing theater. Um, there is definitely like an adrenaline thing with it. And it has that same kind of payoff as like, it's the same thing as when you're kind of affirmed of like my painting is good or Mm -hmm. this drawing I did actually worked and Mm -hmm. sent a message I needed it to. And so I was getting a lot of that and it, the adrenaline I got from that started to be kind of overridden by, I just don't enjoy being around these people. I hated living in Harrisburg. It was such a small Mm -hmm. town. And, um, so I was like, I need to switch over to the, the art program here, which was tiny. They had a studio department, which was all fine art photography and graphic design and that was it so I switched over and then um, my sophomore year I started to get sick and I didn't realize like what was going on my like I started to not really be able to stand up Mm -hmm. um, from chairs or lift my arms above my head and just like didn't know what was going on Um, I thought I might have a thyroid problem because that runs in my family and so I spent a semester pretty much just like going to doctors all the time while also trying to transition into an art program. And it was just sort of all over the place. 
And I finally got a diagnosis of dermatomyositis, which is this very rare autoimmune thing because mm. I love to be unique. Um, <laughs> Down to my core. You know, yeah. <laughs> they were like, yeah, only like infants or six-year-olds get this. So we don't know why you as like a 19-year-old are getting it. And wow. I was like, I'm special. Yeah. Perpetual um, youth. But I had to go on a bunch of medication. And so for about six months then, my pretty much my sophomore year, I couldn't walk properly. I would just like my legs would collapse under me because it's mm. a muscular problem. Um, and like my hair fell out. I was walking with a cane all the mm. time. It was just horrible. And I started to realize like this campus is not accommodating mm. to any handicap needs. And I can't even like get to the art building properly. Yeah. And then there was one instance where I was in the library and I fell on the ground and I couldn't get back up. Like oh you literally gosh. don't have any like muscle strength. And I was waving my cane around to people going, hello, can someone come help me? And no one came to help me. And I had to like call my roommate to come drive and get me. And I was like, I don't want to live here anymore. Yeah. Like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Like in the past few years, I have just like drank a lot, gotten sick, done stupid theater that I don't even want to do. What am I doing? And I thankfully had a, um, a professor who had gone to VCU and was a sculptor. And she was like, you shouldn't be here. Like, you need to apply to VCU. If you want to go somewhere else, that's fine. But, like, it's in-state. It will be easy for you. You need to go. So I basically just put all of my effort into finishing the semester and applying to VCU. And I got in. And so I moved here, and I was, like, just starting to finally, like, recover. And um, didn't really know what I wanted to do anymore. I was just like, well, I don't want to do theater. So we're going back to art. And AFO, I, you know, you hear a lot of like horror stories from people in AFO, like, I never want to touch cardboard again <laughs> and stuff like that. And I actually like, I loved it. I loved me. I was like, I don't want to do sculpture. I loved my, my space class. I'm like building like 12 foot tall wooden sculptures. And I loved getting back into painting and building crap. And it just like, it helped a, a lot with even just like the physical recovery process. Mm. Wow. And I was like, okay, well, now I need to figure out, do I want to go back into that like weird concept design world or do I want to do fine art? Because I was, you know, it was just cathartic. And um, so I, I decided that my first choice for a major would be communication arts here at VCU. Um, and my second choice was sculpture. And so whichever one I got into would be what I did. And I got into com arts. And um, the real turning point when I decided I wanted to do illustration... I signed up for a illustration class with Sterling Hunley and I, it was just like an elective course and I was like, eh, it looks, it looks kind of interesting. Illustration sounds like it might be fun, but I didn't really know what it was. Um, and then I went into the class and Sterling walks in he starts like talking about his career and I'm like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> like, who does he think he is? Like, and you know, he starts dropping names and I'm like, why have I never heard of him before? And so like we had a break cause it was an all day class. It was like six hours. And so on my lunch break, I Googled him and I saw his Wikipedia page. And I was like, he has a Wikipedia page. What? And I'm looking at his work and I was like, Oh my God, like I, I need to talk to this guy. What is he doing? Yeah. And so I started, talking to him a lot, asking a lot of questions, writing down like everything he said about what illustration was and something just clicked. And I was like, this has everything that I wanted to do. Like I can work with whatever medium I want to work with. I can like do things that are still involved with movies or TV shows mm -hmm. that I like, but then I can also do things with books and I can like draw characters, but I could also draw real people or places. And all of these like little switches just started flipping in my head 
And um, the first project I did with him was actually horrible. And um, we had like two weeks to do it. He liked my sketches. He was like, yeah, go with that one. And I tried painting it in gouache, and it was the hit, most hideous thing I'd ever done. <laughs> and I, I was so embarrassed to bring it into critique. And I go into class the next day, and I'm like, I can't believe I'm going to show anyone this. And, um, and Sterling was like, yeah, well, you know, I think that we all need a little bit more time, so I'm going to extend it a week. Um, I don't expect anyone to have anything, but if you do, let me see it. And I was like, oh, crap, he's still going to see it. And I showed it to him, and he was like, well, you just don't know how to paint. And I was like... You're not wrong. Okay. (laughs) And um, so he told me about Thomas Blackshear and uh, pointed me to a step-by-step magazine article about his gouache process. And so the next week, for some bizarre reason, I didn't have any other homework. And so every night I just sat down for a couple hours and was working on this portrait of my dad, actually, for an illustration that was like a mock New York Times thing. And something just clicked and I realized I didn't have to draw cartoony and I didn't have to do like concept design. It didn't have to be characters, but I could like render. Mm-hmm. And, um, I literally remember like pulling out highlights in my dad's cheek and it looked like a cheek and I just started crying mm-hmm. and I called my dad and I was like, I could paint now. And he was like, that's nice. <laughs> um, and so that illustration, I still have it at my house. Um, was kind of the turning point. And ever since then, I've I worked with Sterling a lot more. I was lucky enough to do some independent studies with him. And he's kind of probably been the most influential person yeah, um, in my, my art career, just helping me and, and pointing me in the right direction. Not a bad person to have as an in- influence. And then he pointed me to the Illustration Academy, um, which I went to summer of 2019. So good timing. Um, and that changed a lot of things. And, and from there, it's just kind of been figuring out what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's an on, ongoing process. Sure. But um, there's a clear divide in my work from AFO to when I took that class with Sterling and then from then to when I went to the Illustration Academy. And so pretty much after that, I just spent the rest of my undergrad, you know, I, I guess I was an undergrad for three years at VCU. Mm-hmm. Um figuring out what I like and I painted, um, I would just stay in the studio for like three days sometimes. (laughs) And, um, you know, eventually my parents helped me buy an iPad. And so I tried to figure out how to paint with the iPad and trying Photoshop and just like doing as much as I could with Mm -hmm. the time that I had. Um, and that eventually turned into like getting these cool job opportunities because I had enough work and just started showing it to people. Sure. So, that eureka moment is like the, I mean, I think, I guess I'm listening to that and it's like a aha moment. The tears start, you know, it's like a eureka, like it clicks, something yeah. clicks. That it clicks has something to do, I always say like that has something to do with the way the world works. Like it's like strumming a chord on a guitar and you make the chord formation and it makes the note or the sound and you go, oh my gosh. And then it becomes a question of like, does that feel right in my hands? Like, does that feel good to me? Yeah. You know, and then that's the that's the click. But before that ever happens, I think there's the 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 seeker part in you. So the seeker part in my mind is is critical in that in this picture because um whether it's stated or intuitive, there is an expectation that at some point you're going to strum and it will click. Mm. Otherwise you wouldn't be seeking. 
So there is a, a laden expectation that there is a sense to be made uh, in a sensible world that is going to bring about um, like an accordance between myself and my desires in whatever it is that I'm making. You know, it's like when you're like, I put the highlights down and I um, lift it out the cheek and then all of a sudden the form is there. It looks like that, you know, that's that's a standard skill or that's a, like um, that is a re- replicatable process such that it could be taught to you, such that a teacher could say, hey, go read this step-by-step deal, this article, and then you did it and it did, it worked. <clears throat> that says something about, I think, the world. But what's key in that is your uh, willingness. Like, you know, if you're, if you're, because I mean, for every teacher, for every time a teacher says something like that, I find that there's more people that won't do it yeah. Yeah, yeah. than will. And so to me, it's just like, my, my guess is that's a laden thread in your experience that will probably bear out even in this discussion is like um, the willingness to, to hone in and actually do it to say, it's like kind of like who it's like saying like, who is this guy? Like, and then being like, I'm gonna check out. Like, I mean, I, I you know, I, ha- I had my experiences like that. And the, again, the internet, it's like, I'm getting old. So like the internet wasn't what it is when I was in school, but I remember being like, um, well, my, my teacher, my big, big teacher, the, the guy that held, held a lot of weight with, there was Linda Day and then there's Oliver Jackson. But like, so I remember everybody would say Oliver, Oliver, Oliver. And I was like, who is this guy? Yeah. And then he kind of gave me some anointing and was like, you might be a painter, but you need training. And that was all he said. And I was just like, that was it. <laughs> like, that's all I needed to hear. Um, but still you have to have the determination to, to step into those things, you know? Um, so I don't know. It's just interesting to me that like, so I'm just hearing that in relationship to like you charging your brother yeah. 25 yeah. cents. Of, like, where does that come from? Were your, um, your parents entrepreneurial? Was there, no. were you, where were you seeing, like, how were you, how, like, how is that bound up in your youthful child self? Like, where'd that come from? I'm not really sure. I mean, yeah, my, my mom was, uh, she studied child psychology, but she mm-hmm. was a stay at home mom. And my dad was a Top Gun fighter pilot. Wow. So he I, I think that answered the question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess. Of, go get itness right there. Yeah. <laughs> there definitely was a, a little bit of that. And I like my dad, um, I used to play sports a lot more as a kid. And so there there was always a little bit of like competitiveness mm-hmm. too to everything that I did. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know why. I mean, part of it is I just like messing with my brother. <laughs> yeah, so, it's, it's gotta be partly that. Yeah. So it was mostly that. But um definitely I don't I don't know exactly where like because I, I would consider myself relatively business savvy for at least an illustrator yeah um, compared to my friends not compared yeah. to everyone for sure but um, that's the part that that gets me the most frustrated when I when I talk to my peers who make such good work mm-hmm. and no one's not enough people are seeing it yeah and I'm like well why are you not sending it to people and I think that was more so than just the willingness to work because I see so many people staying after in the studio putting in the time yep. and, you know, really trying to figure out what they want out of their career. What I'm not seeing as much of, um, at least within within the, the department I, I was in, is a willingness to then take the work and put it in front of as many people as you possibly can to get a job, mm-hmm. um, which I never understood because the worst that you're going to get is either no response or like it's not ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you have your answer and it's to work work more like figure yep. out what's wrong with it yep um so well yeah i mean it's the same it's the same the stakes are different but it's the same kind of experience with coming in with the painting and having 
uh, Sterling say you, you don't know how to paint. Yeah. At that point, you're being given an opportunity. The question is, which do you step towards it or away from it? Yeah. And like th- that's always kind of the case. I mean, you, you, you kind of do have to be rejected quite a bit to be an artist. Yeah. I mean, and you have to have a really good framework to just be like, oh, a no doesn't always mean no. It just means not ready yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And those are definitely like the best classes that I had or when people were like, this isn't great. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, now like it, it almost makes me excited because it's like, well, there's something to work for then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Sterling was definitely one of those people where he was very critical of my stuff. Um, but that also led to me starting to understand what was happening in my own work and Mm -hmm. able to analyze it on my own. Mm -hmm. And it reached a point where then I could, you know, turn back to Sterling and say, actually, I think this is working and here's why. And so I think that when you start to get, um, professors, mentors, or, or just, you know, people who are working in that same sphere as you, it does help when people are critical because it teaches you to be critical of your own work Mm -hmm. and understand it more. And then you can make conscious choices about those critiques without it just being like, this is wrong now because you don't know how to paint. Well, now it's like, I don't like this because this is happening. I can go, well, actually that was intentional. Mm -hmm. And I, that was so helpful getting professors like that. And there's been multiple, Miguel was one of them who was Mm -hmm. on the podcast. (laughs) Gareth was very helpful. And like, (laughs) you know, telling us to write a resume. I'm relieved to hear that Gareth's helpful. Like I haven't experienced that. (laughs) Hey, that makes three of us. Yeah. Dr. Snack smell. I mean, I coming through the clutch. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, it's it's, gene. (laughs) I think it's a, you know, it's pretty fantastic as like what you're talking about, Abby, like it is something we've talked a lot about on the podcast, especially this past year is that there's, there's the internal work of the artist, right? The stuff that is like kind of insular and individual and the stuff that we all really like because it comes from like your story, like the stuff you were doing at your house with your brother when you were kids, right? It's, there's still a a piece of that in what most of us largely consider artistic practice and what detrimentally we've made too much of artistic practice um, because it hasn't been balanced by that external work of kind of approaching into the world. And Mm -hmm. how does this affect people? How do their opinions impact my work? How do their critiques help me achieve new things or grow or how they benefit me? Um, And, and, you know, it, it is, it is easy to find places where the internal work is prioritized, not just prioritized, but prioritized to the detriment of the external work. Yeah. So it'll be, you know, hey, your practice is so, so important as an individual, just you doing your stuff to grow and change that we're never going to deal with the fact that it actually has to do something after you graduate or after you leave this program or after you leave this mentorship or whatever else. Um, and that's tough, um, you know, because it, it, it makes like when I was going through school, I had one professor who I've said this before, but um, when I asked, like, well, how does this play out? after graduation, they said, Oh, you'll figure it out. Mm. And that's, that's not the place you want to be. It's not super comfortable. (laughs) Um, it's difficult. Um, and also like, you know, what you're saying, Ryan, like the, the conversation with folks after the fact is not dissimilar to a critique in a classroom. Um, and I, I actually would say that looking back on the critiques I had that were bad, like I would completely agree with you, Abby. They were the ones that were most helpful, but they were also the ones that were a relief because I was like, oh, good. I I did bad work. <laughs> like, yeah. I felt that making this. Well, everybody, <laughs> I think, so um, this, the, how do you parse it out? The average person's average expectation 
of what constitutes an artist or a designer of any kind. Yeah. Is very limited. Yeah. yeah. In their conscious awareness and what they're conscious of and what they can articulate. So it's often established by someone saying, I couldn't do it. Well, I couldn't do that. Therefore, you must be because I'm not. Yeah. So it's like, I could, and I, you know, I always use the example of turn a wrench. I couldn't turn a wrench. Therefore, I'm not a plumber, but you must be. It's like we don't really do that except for with art a lot of times or music. You know, things that, things that um, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, things that ex- seem to exist outside the, um, the normative uh, sort of expectations for vocation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That are the most obvious and accessible to no fault of any one person necessarily. It's to say that there is a post-industrial revolution, pragmatism, utility, reality to economy to the to the what we do and why we do it and how it's measured and that's important but the impact then is it um restricts the um the economy of time as understood in in an industrial revolution kind of sense means that um we don't even have pockets of time afforded to us to consider these things Mm -hmm. because the pockets of time we're afforded our leisure times for leisure activities Understandably so, because the whole dynamic is uh, rest so that you're a better worker. Mm. Um, so it all still is bound that way. So I'm going somewhere with this. So, so then you get to the average person um, doesn't know how to esteem the work mm. or what you should do. And what that creates in a lot of us is a lack of reinforcement and a lack of confidence to reinforce y- you in stepping and growing because there's no criticality there. They have, I can't appeal to something I don't possess in order to say you should do more when you're already exceeding anything I think that I could do. Mm-hmm. So if the benchmark is is me, well, I can't tell you to, to try harder. You're already pretty good. So then you come through high school and people are telling you things like, you're pretty good. Or, or they don't say anything at all and you're left going like, I know I'm pretty good. Because I can just make the eye comparison, mm-hmm. but I also know that I am lacking. Yep. And it's a paradox. You're like, I'm both better than a lot of people in my classes right now, but I know I'm not. Like, I know where I cut corners. I know when I've cheated. I know when I've, you know, traced. I know when I've, like, yeah. I know this stuff. I know how hard that was to do that you think came easy. And I know you won't believe me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I remember that, like being like, people be like that just, you just, and then of course you're tempted by the effort to look together. So then you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I did that. And you're like, you have no idea how hard that was for me. And I like, there's a drawing I did that won a bunch of awards in high school. What people don't know is I did that drawing four times. Yeah. There's four unfinished versions. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they exist anymore or not. And it was the last one where it clicked. No one knows that. I've never yeah. said that publicly ever, but it, like, that there was no one that had an eye and experience understanding that could ever speak in and, and lift me out of that conundrum. So then you get like this arrested development understanding of art. And um, the heartbreaking thing is when that carries on into college, when you're mm-hmm. expecting something more from your peers and yes. your professors. Yeah. That, and so it speaks to a larger... So I guess what I, where I was going with this is, this is a... As much as the arts are pervasive... This is the combated pervasive attitude, which is a gross ignorance, mm-hmm. um, a gross ignorance with very little effort to fill in the blanks and, and acknowledge that ignorance. And so the culture doesn't um, reinforce 
what we do in, in certain ways that helps to mitigate anyone and everyone just believing we all can do it. If you want it bad enough and you just believe you can become that, yeah. that that's just a comfortable way of, of saying, I don't know how to tell it'll <laughs> shake down in the end, you know, and yeah. you know, and it does. So then you get like one or two successful people and then you got everybody else is bitter and frustrated and, um, and we just kind of carry on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's what you said earlier, Abby, about when you were younger, you thought that the arts were either just like, you're just like a painter or you made cartoons. Like, yeah, I don't, I mean, that's kind of what think, I thought. I don't think most people yeah. get past that. I yeah. mean, like, honestly, like, even when I talk to to students that, um, you know, I'll have interdisciplinary students come to my classes and they're like, well, I don't, you know, I'm not a painter and I don't draw comic book stuff. So I don't know how I fit in this creativity space. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, it's like two drops in the bucket right. of, of everything in there. Um, and it is tough to get past, right? Because there is something about something about the arts that has been, I mean, for the last, what, six, 700 years, been a uh, viewed as like a leisurely activity, right? It is a, it is a hobbyist sort of per thing. It is, it is for the elite, mm-hmm. um, you know, so you do it when you have extra time. So those of us who are serious about life and work, we just don't have time to dig into mm-hmm. it, which is, couldn't be further from the truth because mm-hmm. while you're doing whatever job you're doing, you're listening to music, you're mm-hmm. reading a book when you get home, you're watching a movie or a show, uh, you know, you're going to a public park, you're yeah. enjoying buildings and cities, yeah. uh, everything we've always yeah, talked COVID, about. Yeah, COVID is a false dilemma, because COVID, COVID is, I think, in a lot of ways proven this, that um, now whether it's good or bad or however preferable, not preferable, impactful, what kind of th- those kinds of qualifiers are up for grabs. But one thing that COVID has proven is that the arts are not inessential. No, they're totally because oh, yeah. they've been uh, doing, uh, sp- sp- you know, heavy lifting spiritually, if you will, the spirit of a people like mm-hmm. the, um, uh, the go to, I mean, like, just like take the Mandalorian, it's like was, a pop. Like I knew it was gonna come. It had to. Point. I know, <laughs> but but like you know, my kids were watching the Mandalorian, this Lorian video where the guy, this guy sings lyrics to the the music. It's so good. <laughs> he has the same mustache. It's so good. We love it. Um, and but it's like so generative that it creates um, comedy responses that hold up because yeah. of how strong the core is. But the the thing is, like, who's designing all that stuff? Like yeah. who's make like one of the things I love about the Mandalorian is every episode closes with the concept art yep. yeah. and the concept art sometimes is better than the actual films. Yeah. Just and, like concept cars. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, so you're like, so everyone is hyped about this while in, in, um, possibly having their spirits built up in a, in a temporary sense. I don't mean like deep, deep formation. I just mean that it's directional. There's a story, it, yeah, these stories either bring about hope or despair. They, they run you through an experience. There's a transference of that experience in hypothetical worlds back into your own world. Best case scenario. Um, at the minimum, it's alleviating a little bit of stress on a Friday night when they drop at a minimum, yeah. which um, uh, stress can be replaced with something salient. And, and there's a whole discussion there. But the point is um, these kinds of cultural moments are what people are resting on mm-hmm. while talking about how inessential uh, yeah. the arts are. And so like, even if you, you get it into the culinary arts, like we are going to find out and are finding out how essential this is because all these restaurants are closing. Yeah. 
you know, so all the designers that have done the branding and the work to, to cultivate the vision of the restaurant and all the artistry that goes into the cooking, like all of that is going away. We are not, human beings don't do well bare bones. Yeah. We're not bare bones beings. We're, we're really voluminous beings that um, thrive uh, when, create, when creativity is flourishing. Yeah, and I've had to explain mm-hmm. that. I mean, that's it's it's been difficult because even with like the members of my family who mm-hmm. all are very supportive of me doing this um, and are always like, yeah, let me see, you know, what what work have you been doing, whatever. They don't understand how the industry works, which I don't blame them for. But even um, like my dad, who's mm-hmm. you know, I, t- I I talk to my parents almost every day when now I'm living with them, but. Um, you know, I would update them on what was going on and everything. And when I graduated, I called my dad and we were chatting and he was like, oh, well, are you going to look for like, like an office job working in illustration? And I was like, no, that's, that's not how it works. Like you don't go and work for a company doing illustration unless it's a really specific thing. That's more graphic design. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be doing like contract work. Mm -hmm. And he was like, oh, so like you won't be like hired as a full-time employee of the Criterion Collection. I'm like, absolutely not. Yeah. They, they might yeah. hit, hit me up every yep. year or two or something mm-hmm. at best. Right. Um, and that kind of surprised him. And I've, I hope that I've sparked a little bit of the fury that I feel about people not appreciating the arts in them. Mm-hmm. Because when they see me work, you know, they know that it's hours and hours and hours. And it's not something that's just for fun. It's an essential part of do you like the way that the packages you buy look. Yep. Do you like the way your clothes look? Do you like the way your furniture looks? Mm-hmm. Do you like watching movies on your nice TV and and getting the best sound quality possible? Yeah. All of that is made possible by creatives. Mm-hmm. So it's it's something that's very necessary. Yeah. And yet, you know, it, it is difficult to get that. That's always jobs. my my visual. When we talk about the arts being pervasive for years, just have a picture of someone just loafing. Yeah. And they're just like, just like... <laughs> I mean, they got the nicest shoe. They're just like, man, art suck. And you're like, <laughs> dude, take away everything. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, what are you talking? Like, you just don't, but you just don't know. But the thing is, you can't really blow someone up into yeah. knowing and appreciating. You have to kind of walk them out. Mm-hmm. It's like you're, um, you know, talk about being, it's like being, you have to be awakened yeah. to what you've been taking for granted. Your eyes have, you have to, the fog has to lift and you have to kind of go, oh, yeah. like, oh yeah. my gosh. Like that app when I'm playing Candy Crush. <laughs> somebody, somebody, somebody designed that. Yeah, when I keep yeah. getting hit up every day on Facebook by people that want me to play this, like, um, oh gosh, I forget what game it is now. It's just hilarious. I'm gonna forget it, but it's like some kind of gangsta game. <laughs> yeah, it's like all my friends back home are like, play this gangsta game. You're you're so and so gangsta, and I'm like, why are you hit me up with this? But there's all these graphics for it. I never play it. I, I'm like a race, a race. Please stop hitting me up. Um, but it's like even that someone designed that, someone created that app, that game, like the most it's it's just inescapable yeah it's inescapable yeah i mean the, the mountains of creative work necessary for us to go to our house and do absolutely nothing yes yeah. like <laughs> it's, it's mind-boggling yeah. right it's like how much work went into you having a day off yeah yeah you know like because yes. what would you do on your day off without creative spaces right if those things didn't exist and the people working in them weren't there like your day off you might actually be like could i work seven days a week because my day offs are hell yeah and like that's one of the, the things that I have started to hear more now than, than any other time in my life that I've graduated and actually started to get jobs is people come up to me and go, well, you know, if, if you do the thing you love, you never work a day in your life. And I'm like, no, I False. work every single day. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do love it, but like 
no, that is not how it works. And, yeah. you know, there are times where I hate it. Oh, yeah. There are times where I'm like, I would literally rather do anything else on the planet yep. than draw. Yeah, that's a that's also one of those things that needs to get busted up is the dichot yes. the dichotomizing of love and work. Yeah, um, is a false dilemma, and what it does is it gives people the wrong signals for their relationships to people and things. So when when you're in a marriage, let's say I'm I'm married with kids, I love my wife and my children, and it's work. Yeah. it's not a dilemma. It's not an either or. It's a both and. In fact, it's part and parcel to yeah. the nature of relationships is to work at them. So anything of value will require work from you. And I think that has to do with the kinds of beings that we are. We're we're doing it, we're doing kinds of beings and we cultivate and and there is demands that come from a forward move into work. So the the resistance or uh, the way in which a medium, so like you paint with oils for the first time, there's a resistance in oil to a hand that does not understand oil. So you have to work to know the medium to then begin to employ the medium in meaningful ways. That's a process. So same with relationships. Like so, this idea that we if 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 we if we do what we love, it's bliss, and if it's work, you're miserable. Yeah. has set so many people into an anxious downward spiral in their lives because um, no thing can bear the weight of giving you bliss 24-7 mm, yeah. without, uh, without pause. And actually, we, we don't exist in a, a heightened state of bliss. It's actually, um, if you've ever been, like if someone's ever been like in love or something like that, when you're, whatever you want to call that, that like where you can't function, and you obsess over the phone. Are they going to call me? Like I just remember with with Laura, like I couldn't function unless I knew. Like there was a suspended amount of time where I couldn't do anything other than wait for a call. Yeah, I just embarrass myself. But like you can't function like that. Society doesn't work that way. Yeah. yeah. Although I think we're trying to make it work. I mean, I think we've tried to build a society that does, and and then we're anxious because we're just not using our abilities. We're not because we're. Um, we're allergic to work, yeah. you know. I don't know. I mean, it's you know, there's there's a there's a huge amount, a uh, huge amount of romanticism that is placed on the work we do as creatives, right? So, uh, and you, you hear this a lot. Like, it, you go as far back as you want, mm-hmm. and I always use like the cliche of like the the condescending like aunt, uncle, cousin, whatever. When you go home, and it's like, oh, how's art school? Isn't that nice? Mm-hmm. You know, as if it's not work, as if it's something else. Um, that if even though just, we call it artwork, yeah, right. <laughs> it's like it's in the name, man. Just throwing it out there. Um, <laughs> but you know, like it, it, there is that that lack of realization about it. So there's a romanticization romanticization of it. I think that happens. Um, that we as like artists and designers are not we're not immune to. Mm-hmm. Like we still have that. Oh yeah. And so if you're you know Abby, you're talking about like um, you know your peers that are doing fantastic work and they're in the studio and they don't mind that, but they're just not putting it out there. Like, I think some of it is like, there's some romanticization even in the idea of like, Oh, I've made the thing and it has uh, such value to it. I know that it will be self-evident. So other people will just see it yeah, and they'll just know, even if I'm not putting it out there and doing that other side of the work. Um, And that's, that's tough because it, that is, that is one of those things that is much more learned in the real world than in the academic world or the training space. 
Um, well, it's it, harder. It, it goes back to that. By the way, when you said romanticized, I just satellite brain debris. Mm-hmm. Um, all I could hear is Kenny G in the background while you're talking, going. Man, I'm glad that really, came across. Yeah, that's what was going in my head too. Yeah, some like romantic music playing in the background, and you're like, <laughs> I know someone will, but <laughs> someone will discover my art. <laughs> the Kenny G's hair just perfect, just flowing. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, I think the thing, Abby, that you're talking about with your friends and Gareth, what you're hitting at, um, goes back to the point I was making earlier about the lack of, um, the ignorance that, and I, I don't mean ignorance in a condescending way. I mean like, cause I got just the not knowing. Yeah. Not knowing I'm, I'm ignorant to massive amounts of things. So like yeah, we all got our, yeah, our yeah, yeah. Everybody's got open it. spaces of no it's, knowledge. It's impossible yeah. not to. So with that, our culture has, you got to go back to the industrial revolution thing. We've really built a society. So even, you know, just as an interesting thought, your work matters, even if you didn't put a lot of hours into it. Yeah. So the hours is still an economical industrial revolution mindset. It's, it's, it's really baked into our, our, our core and to fight, to have a value for the arts that isn't, uh, um, validated that way is difficult. Um, and I'm not demonizing. I'm saying we all do it. Me too. So like, it's just that it's, it's worth unpacking and, and having like an awareness of that. Like, Oh yeah. Even if I didn't put a lot of hours into it, it could be a good thing yeah. or it could be immensely valuable. But also I think a lot of people, I think there is a lot of, there was a lot of buildup in the last decade of you can do it, but an, um, a lack of follow through for, um, what that means when you get into industry. Like, so you got a lot of people that are, that, that are fighting the good fight of saying you can do it to overcome this ignorance, but they lack a certain amount of that experience themselves to say, okay, so then what do we, what does that look like applying for jobs or applying for gigs? And, um, you know, whether you're a fine artist or, you know, you name it. And part of that. So what happens is I think there's a lot of people that are like, they just, they do just believe that they can do it. And in that gap of what happens next, you have to fill it in with something, right? It's going to be filled in with hope. It's going to be filled in with, um, you know, the, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll get a uh, image seen on Instagram or mm-hmm. whatever that might be for somebody. But what it speaks to is a, 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 a lack of thoroughgoing reinforcement. And that reinforcement is missing because in the Academy, there's been a demonizing of um, art in order to preserve art, capital a art it has to be dislodged from the economics mm-hmm. uh, because the because it's tied into there's a recognition of the value of art as not necessarily being bound up in the post-industrial revolution mindset. So there's a good step of trying to dislodge this. The consequences of that is it's dislodging it without accounting for the pervasive way in which the world works at this point, yeah. Yeah. especially in the United States. And so what happens is you cut people off from uh, the invitation into creative abilities to step into this world and infuse it with the value of this. And so those that want to do that are demonized from those mm-hmm. that want to stay, quote unquote, purist. That's your whole right. yeah. Greenbergian. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It's so, I mean, art yeah. and mentality, right? Like yeah. we've always had the art and sort of uh, moniker for it. So you've got art and so it used to be arts and crafts. Right? Yeah. So you had the That's things right. that were legitimate and the things that were for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. You know, and like and it's still the reason that we are so careful to always say art and design mm-hmm. so that we understand that there's a coupling of those things. Yeah. Now, the, the, the hard part about that is when we talk about that. 
then you have you still have the uh, traditional plastics versus exactly all the other things mm-hmm. that are industry based, right? Um, even though, like, you walk into either our homes, Ryan, and what's on the walls? Well, they're paintings that didn't just show up because mm-hmm. somebody just like you know that we manifested them through our, our thinking or or we found them on the side of the road, right? Like they were purchased through the same industry mm-hmm. economic basis. Um, as other things, and we're not alone in this. Yeah, it's all over it's, the place. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's not like we found some designer and said, "Hey, it's acceptable for you to sell me something." So, as a designer, could you paint me a thing? Because mm-hmm. painters are off limits yeah. for me to buy from. Yeah, so this speaks the art to and is tough. Yeah, and this speaks to. I mean, I think Gareth and I have talked for years now about mentorships for people once they leave school because you have to be willing to be looked at as a like you have to be okay with certain people looking down on you because you're like, I'm totally. Like, so take me, like, I'm going to make my little idiosyncratic abstract paintings and I'm a, I'm a, a fine art dork. That doesn't exclude me from doing all the other stuff we do, yeah. uh, including things like fundraising for a gallery, doing stuff that could be commodified. Like, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't have a conflict there. Yeah. It's yeah. very big and it's, it's, it's diminished over time um, in working with Gareth. And so, you know, what you need is people that can actually that don't have that baggage to then yeah, to not over demonize in one direction or the other. Yeah. Right. To just say, Oh no, no, that's a false dilemma altogether, which means we've got a whole new possibility sitting in front of us when we're not even continuing dealing with contending with these dilemmas. Well, yeah. and I think that, that kind of goes back to um, what you were saying earlier with like in school, having it be this very internal thing. And so many people trying to figure that out that they're not willing to put the external work in because I mean, I, I think that I'm having like the reverse problem now Mm. where, where I put so much onto, I need to make sure that my stuff is marketable Mm -hmm. that now I am trying to figure out, well, what do I want from it? Gotcha. And, um, there is, I think, one thing that I'm seeing a lot now that quarantine has happened and you're having a lot of people go back to the arts and, you know, people who are opening Etsy shops everywhere mm-hmm. is the rhetoric I'm seeing like on social media is it's fine to sell your art, support artists, but also like you can make for the sake of making. Yes. And I'm yes. trying to figure that part out now. And I think that it might be switched for a lot of people when they mm-hmm. go through school is like, you're trying to figure out like, who am I? Mm-hmm. Like I saw so many paintings, especially in my first two years of school that mm-hmm. were like self portraits that were really weird and like, <laughs> you know, stuff about like, Oh, you know, this is about my childhood trauma and this mm-hmm. is about this. And I was like, all right, how do I make something that's like funny that people are going to get? And now it's definitely like illustration, which is like, how do I make sure that this person wants to buy my work? Mm-hmm. Um, and then people realize, okay, well no one, really wants to to see the the weird painting about my childhood trauma and I never learned how to paint because I was trying to make work about my childhood trauma <laughs> which is I mean like is yeah. honestly like I I don't have a problem with that that's a right. noble pursuit but then you get out in the world and you're like well what do I do with this yeah yep. exactly and now I'm like okay well I've made the work where it's just like yeah you want you want another painting of share I got you covered oh, like please I, make I can, more paintings of share <laughs> I want <to>. yeah <laughs> um so it's like yeah I, I can do the celebrity portraits I can do like you know the goofy little things about the next blockbuster movie that came out but what do I want to make work about that isn't just I need to make sure that I send yeah. this to the 150 clients that I have on my mm-hmm. mailing list yeah. so 
Now mm-hmm. that that's I, you know what you're talking about, Ryan, and, and this is exactly like I would say that I'm, I'm more in that space with you, Abby, because we you know we're both kind of on that side of things where we're more client based with what we do. Um, but I'd say you know to just almost the the vice versa, the mirror image of what Ryan was saying um, is like you know coming through school, everything was like there there wasn't there wasn't a commodification conversation because it was just assumed that everything I was doing was already commodified, yeah. like it was already there. Right. Like I, I was going to be selling this stuff. It was going to be part of it. Uh, I was making it to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, it's been an uncomfortable few years getting to a place where it's like, oh, so I can I can make something that is self like actually self-directed. Yeah. You know, and it can just sit on my wall. Yeah. It can sit in my house. And like there's value to it, like mm-hmm. you were saying, Ryan. Like yep. you know, no matter how long it took or not, there's there's value to it. The the category itself holds value regardless of the category's application economically, uh, time wise, whatever else it is, there is value in it first and foremost. And that's a hard place to be. Um, especially if you've kind of trained yourself and been trained in an environment where your your hours equal your money your livelihood, your whatnot. Um, and that's and all tough. true in a lot of ways. It is. It's so true. It's like fighting for the other. It's fighting to put an onus on, you know, what we talked about in the past, the elusiveness of art, that it it alludes to more. It's like um, it, ex, it has a, a form. Um, there's a way in which the the materiality of the world when formed or crafted or fashioned into things that we would call art. When that happens, there is what is in the most strict sense of the material makeup and composition. Mm-hmm. And when something is bound together in that way, like at like the molecular level, like it, mm-hmm. it is what it is in that sense, there is an emanation of what that is that is elusive to more. Mm-hmm. So it's the way like bread is constituted, um, renders an aroma of bread. Mm-hmm. And that aroma stokes like something more in us than merely even what the bread can deliver. Like how many times have you smelt something and the smell, and you, you say, gosh, this almost smells better than it tastes. Yeah, It's because the smell has set up an expectation that even the, the form that's delivering the smell can't fully deliver in one, in one portion. That's the world. The world is like that. So when we make things, it does that. And so... Therefore, at a minimum, it fits into this economical equation. But it's, it's so it's never it's never disputing that it's arguing for the, the thing that you can't quantify, mm-hmm. which is the way it emanates. And that emanation has an impact. Otherwise, um, and, and a lot of times it's intuitively caught. Otherwise, though, like we, we know that because we get offended when people walk in and they're they don't say anything to us because we have like an intuitive awareness of what they're emanating. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. like for everything someone says it's offensive, we also find people offensive for what they don't say. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so we're, we are perceiving beings and therefore there is a kind of communication that extends past our propositional knowledge mm-hmm. and, and has incredibly impacts and shapes and communicates something to us. And it's intuitive. So you can't, you have to trans to try to translate that credible intuitive knowledge into propositional is its own problem. And yeah. we, sometimes we just don't have to do that. We just have to fight to, to point the fact out and say, we need to account for this. We need to make mm-hmm. space for this. Um, and that's the hardest fight. Like that's the fight. Um, 
Yeah, and also, I mean, know. it feels kind of like, you know, we, we've talked about like work-life balance versus work-life integration. And mm-hmm. it feels like, you know, there is a, uh, there's, you know, a siloing through uh, industry, through the academy, whatever else of like art and design and the other things at university level, um, other areas of knowledge and skill. Um that it's almost like the the conversation has to be had there as well, mm-hmm. where it's like the the utility, the value, um, the you know just enjoyment, um, and all the things you're talking to, the elusiveness of it, like all those things, they have to be integrated back mm-hmm. into an understanding of the arts for a more uh, holistic, uh, ecosystem based understanding of what they are, so that we don't constantly, because I mean these are what we're talking about here, like this is one of the most common dilemmas I hear from students where they're like, well, I have to make this thing, but I want to do it this way. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. I hate that that's the oppositional conversation we have. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of something we talked about uh, before we started uh, recording this morning, Abby, but you were talking about how you're kind of having a sort of, like you're very much experiencing this kind of dilemma right now with yeah. your making and your desiring. And like, I don't know, you want to kind of talk a little bit about that and like where you are in your thinking and maybe just keep, putting some more flesh on the bones we're already talking about. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, I think the last time I talked to you when you asked me to be on the podcast, I was talking about like everything, everything with illustration right now, at least like I, I have gotten to a point mechanically where I know that I can create a product that I'm happy with that I know is going to be in some way visually interesting or grab the eye that I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm really fine with people seeing this. The part that I'm trying to figure out now is like, how do I remove this idea of efficiency from my personal work, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is that in school, if you're if you're really dedicated to being like, I want to make sure my work gets out there as soon as possible, there you're playing against time. You want to make things without spending a ton of money. And so I you know, I got an iPad. I started working digitally before I refused to work digitally. I was like, I'll never be one of those people. I'm a purist. And now I'm like, well, <laughs> look what's happened. <laughs> um, so part of it is, is that, and trying to say, how can I bring, like create time in which I am allowing myself to make work that doesn't need to have a commercial purpose. So that's one part of it. And then the other part that, that I'm dealing with, that's it's difficult. I'm going to do my best to explain it. Um, but you know, I, I graduated from my undergraduate degree six months ago, eight months ago, I guess now. Oh, geez. Okay. We're coming up on a year. We're getting there. Um, but you know, I'm 23 years old. I finished my, my first job was with the criterion collection and was a box set with a criterion collection. And I got that before I even graduated. And you know, my first reaction to these things is like, shit like I'm getting a job with the Criterion Collection I'm 23 years old Mm -hmm. and as I've 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 just finished another job with them that has been released yet and I've um worked with another one of my really like top three dream clients and it didn't pan out I'm realizing that I it's not even that I don't think I can do the work now because I know I can do the work now I know I'm good enough to do the work I'll put my work out in front of anyone it's not just about like um um uh, imposter syndrome because mm-hmm. I, I still have that, but I can punch it in the face enough times that it will kind of cower away so I can get what I need to do done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What it's becoming about is I'm wishing that I could get these jobs five years from now instead of right now mm-hmm. so that I could understand 
how to do the work in a way that would have more personal fulfillment for me mm. than just professional fulfillment. Mm. Gosh, does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it does. It and does. it's it's something w- that's difficult because you know I I work pretty much every day. <laughs> I'm I'm constantly doing something, whether it's for Patreon, whether it's like just something to post on social media, or if it's for a job or more promotional material. So it's not like I'm not putting in time into trying to develop mm-hmm. my skills. Mm-hmm. And um, when it, when I started to, to really sort of put a, a name to the frustration I was having is when I listened to the podcast with Miguel, actually with you guys. And um, there was sort of this underlying thing with everything you were talking about, about just like life experience and wisdom and the passage of time feeding into this honesty and understanding of the work. And that's something that I'm like, I can't force that. I can't force the passage of time. I can't force life experience. I just have to continue living. But it's frustrating because once you understand that, it's like, oh, well, I guess I just got to wait. Awesome. And I'm not good at waiting. <laughs> so yeah. that's, yeah. I think, yeah, there, I mean, there's there's a lot there. And I think it's, you know, it, it goes in this conversation of like, you know, if we think about like, well, where can these things kind of, what is their genesis, right? Where do they come from? Um like, uh, you know, some of it is, you know, we all come with our assumptions. Uh, some of it is that we have, uh, you know, specified kind of dreams that we want our reality to turn into um, and different things like that. But, you know, I think um, when I think about the situations uh, in my past where I can say the same things um, or I look back on client work and say, man, if I could have done that with the knowledge I have now. Like I just kind of think through it and go, well, what, like, what is that like? And I think some of it is, um, I didn't feel like there was a validity in my voice to actually be in the conversation in a larger way than I was at the time. Um, so there was a, a, a kind of a, a, I don't even know. I mean, in some ways it was like a servitude is the best way to describe the way I was with some clients where it was like the, the idea of serving those clients was so expansive that I was removed entirely from the conversation or I removed myself entirely from the conversation, which is tough. Um, so there's, you know, some spaces like that, but I think also it's, um, but if I look back, I also say, but nothing's really changed. So it, it can be that kind of grass is greener, uh, mentality at times where it's like, yeah, I've got some more wisdom, but does that mean I would have necessarily made different, uh, like, choices or had different ideas or gone different directions. Like I don't, I don't fully know, but I think what has happened is that I've, as I've gotten older, I've been able to kind of sit back a bit into my work and not, (laughs) not frenzy myself over it. I can do the same work even in less time, but I'm not there. There's a different pressure that wisdom has allowed me to put on myself that I wasn't putting on myself at 23. At 23, it was nearly like an aggressive, violent pressure. And at 38, it's a, an internal, like, you can do better work than last time. Yeah. And you don't have to beat yourself up if it just looks like last time or worse than last time. Um, I don't know. That's kind of some of uh, yeah. that place for me. Well, some of that, some of that, um, Abby, when you're talking, I'm thinking about, there's always, it's like you can look into the future, but you also have to go back and kind of examine our assumptions. And the some of the assumptions about art, like the idea of fulfillment is, can be unstatedly 
the notion that it's things we've talked about in the past in the podcast, but like the idea that um, there's like a perfect dance between work that provides for my needs and um, authentic self. And that can be put forward as this dance. Am I authentically me? If I'm authentically me, then more of my voice comes through. And I think that that dilemma, yet again, is anemic because it's not accounting for for the totality of our lives. Yeah. So what I mean by that is, like, I think it's possible even that satisfaction doesn't even come directly from the work you do. I And I definitely agree with that, too. I think part of it is less about like this sort of, you know, poetic idea of fulfillment Mm -hmm. and more about reconciling. Like I used, when I used to make work, there was at least like a moment where I was like, I'm glad I finished making Mm -hmm. that. I'm excited about the next thing now. Yeah. And I, I remember like when I got my first project with Criterion, like crying, I was calling everyone. I was like, Oh my God, like I finally made it. We're going to do it. And when I got my second project, I was like excited, but then I was like, it's work. Yep. And so I've kind of come to terms with that part of it where it's mm-hmm. like, this is my job. It's yeah. not just this thing that I'm like yeah. dreaming about one day doing. I'm yep. doing it, it. The reality is there. And it's it's the reality of it. But I think part of it is coming to terms then with, um, I, I did this one job where this book company that I really wanted to work for reached out to me and said, we want you to do a trial illustration for this book that's under embargo and it needs to be approved in house and then we'll send it over to the author's estate. And if this goes well, then you get the full book and a cover. And if that goes well, you get a series. And I was like, okay. And I like, I felt panic because I was like, I, I am so young to be doing this and it's not uh, like, I'm not good enough to do it, but I'm like, I wish that you were emailing me later. You know, I wish I was hearing from you later because I feel like, I'm starting to not want to work towards these things because the reality is setting in very quickly and very hard. Yeah. And so I think the fulfillment I'm trying to find is more just like a, a very baseline enjoyment of what I do Mm -hmm. because it's starting to become very difficult where when I was working on that trial illustration, just the weight of it was hanging over Mm -hmm. me to the point where I think the illustration turned out fine. There ended up being like a stylistic difference between us. I hope to work with this company again at some point. I'm trying to not say anything, but Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the process was fine. It was just like, we don't think the look of this is right. And we don't want you to change the look because that would be miserable if you're trying to Mm -hmm. emulate a completely different style of work for years of making a series of books. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I was working on it, I was just frustrated the entire time. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is like miserable. Mm-hmm. This is miserable to work on. And that didn't cro- come across in the work. You know, I, I was professional about it and everything. And the work itself was fine. But I was like, how do I reconcile? I need to, to do this. There's a compulsion to do it. But I still want to get something out of it to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... I. I got a couple things. Like one thing that comes to mind is, you know, if, if any of y'all listening out there are in the space where you're like, yeah, I wish I were doing this work like five years from now. Um, I think one of the things to take away is just the, the real basic understanding that like if you're doing it now, you will not be doing it in five years. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways. Like it's like, it should be there. Right. Yeah. 
Um, but the other thing, it, it makes me think of a story. Uh, a mutual friend of ours um, was talking to this uh, person a few years back, um, and they had a very specific plan of what company they wanted to work at, what job they wanted to do, what kind of uh, you know uh, illustration, concept, background art, whatever it was they were wanting to do at this company. And they went to a talk given by an artist who was at that company doing that thing. Um, and this person was only about 10 years older than them. And so we talked afterwards and they said, yeah, it was just uh, kind of, it, w- it was strangely unsettling because the more this person talked during their artist talk, the more I realized you're only like in your mid thirties and you're doing the thing that I've been working towards for years. And they were like, I kind of was getting super panicky about this. So I was like, well, what, what'd you do? And so I, I asked the artist and I said, what, uh, like, where do you go from here? Like what's next? And I just squarely looked at this person in the face and I was like, yeah, I think it's time for your dreams to grow. I think you've become too big for the dreams you have. Like if this is something doable now, like if you're 15, the person having the job you want that's nearly 40 is a lifetime away. Yeah. You know, and so that was what this person had kind of experienced. Like I've been wanting to do this since I was 12, since I played this one video game. That was that spark. That was that click. Like we were talking about earlier of like the eureka (laughs) moment of, oh my gosh, this is how it works. This is what I want. Um, And so some of it may be like, you're in your dreams and that's an uncomfortable place to be yeah. um, because you're like, you <laughs> no, they don't. Um, but it's, uh, it, it, it kind of goes back to uh, a quite one of the questions. One of the best questions I ever heard uh, asked was a lot of people ask you, what do you do when it doesn't work? But nobody asks you, what do you do when it does? Yeah. Like I, I never got like, what happens if you, if you succeed, right? We, we can focus on failure. We've talked a lot about failure. Uh, and failure is one of those things that you can talk a lot about bouncing back and how you respond and that it grows and everything else. But if you succeed, like a lot of those parameters that failure gives you go away. The, one of the things that is helpful within a school situation is that there's always kind of an assumed you haven't gotten it yet. Yeah. That's in the conversation. So there's always a corrective measure. But when you get to a place in your career where you sit down and you say, I'm kind of doing this work. And the people I'm working with, it's working for them. And I'm not doing anything egregious in terms of things that aren't right. I think it's one of those, it's like, I'm kind of in the space I wanted to be. I'm too young for this to be it. And I think that's a natural feeling. I think there's a feeling there where it's like, yeah, it might be too small a dream right now. Like some of it may just be sitting back into the work and being comfortable and saying, hey, I've gotten to that place. So what would be next? What would be the next stage? What would be the next you know, goal or achievement or thing I want my work to do? What's the next skill I want to learn? Um, and that may be just enough to get to a place with your work where you're saying, oh, like all this stuff is kind of taking care of itself because what I'm feeling might be more of the wheel spinning goal-wise, dream-wise, than it is that I'm not satisfied with the work or that I'm not satisfied with something else. It might just be that I, my picture is a little too small. The, the the world for my creative work maybe was a little too compact. And that's the fun thing about wisdom, right? You get a little bit of wisdom and it shows you how much wisdom you don't have. <laughs> and so it's always helpful. So the more you know, the less you actually know you know. Um, and so it's, um, 
it, it's fantastic to kind of sit in that space and say, well, okay, now that I know a little bit more, how can I make these ideas bigger, more fleshed out? How can they be more in, in accord with uh, this reality I'm getting more exposed to? How can I make the world, uh, as I experience it, as big as the world is out there? Yeah. I don't know. And that's, I mean, I, my, my, my answer to trying to figure out some of these questions has been to um, read a lot of books on neuroscience. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that's the direction you're going. And it, it is interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm currently listening to an audio book by this one neuroscientist called David Eagleman, um, and it's called Livewired, if anyone wants to read the book. It's really good. But he, there's a, a portion of it where he says um, that basically like the thrill of living is the endless pursuit of, um, of being, I think. And he talks about how your brain is changing so constantly that your identity will never be solidified. You're never going to reach a point where it's like, I know myself. Mm. I figured this out because you're constantly taking in new information from the world. And I was reading that and I was like, this is a fantastic answer and it makes everything so much damn harder too. Mm. Because it's like, okay, well, if, if you're trying to reach a skill goal, then you have this set thing where you can learn to do it. You can take classes, you can practice. If you're trying to reach some level of like understanding, wisdom, these abstract ideas, literally, I mean, biologically, your brain <laughs> says, no, it's constantly going to change. It's constantly going to have to readapt. And so, I mean, in, in one sense, I'm like, well, cool. I'm, I'm doing the right thing that I'm asking the right questions and we'll just keep figuring it out as we go. But then it is difficult because I, I thought about this in relation to my work. And every time I make a new piece, I'm like, oh, well, maybe that was like the thing that I was trying to get at. That was the thing that will make the next piece better. But then I'm like, well, if that logic applies to, to how I'm looking at these pieces, that's, that's a lifelong game that will ne just continue and continue and continue to play out. Yeah, and, and really, when you talk about that, if you take the flip side of that, um, you know, it's, it's real easy when you're going through art school, uh, you're doing design school, whatever it is, um, it's, it's real easy, sophomore, junior year, senior year, whenever it is, to, to, to just slump into that, like, condescension and be like, oh, I'm not going to be like that person. Look at what they do over and over again, always the same, this, that, and the other. You know, it's easy to kind of get in that space, and you talk about, like, or, or you start to look down on, like, street artists or something like that that are, you know, selling their stuff on the side, and they can do it real quick. Or the, the dude on YouTube is, like, spinning paint on a canvas, and people's minds are blown. You know, whatever it is, right? You <laughs> know, Every time like, someone, please don't send me those anymore. <laughs> yeah, Stop sending me upside-down paintings. The, the person is painting on black. They've already penciled on the drawing, and you just color in the light and the dark, and it comes out, and you spin it over. And it's just a mess with your eyes. Stop doing that. Sorry. Yeah. Anyhow, <laughs> no, but I think like the reason that those things annoy us is because they've they've reached a state of stasis yeah. where they're just like, I'm good enough with this. Yeah. I'm fine with this. Like, and that, and I think that bothers us because there is something internal in us where we understand how small we are, even if we don't, even if we don't come to terms with it, we understand how small we are in a gigantic world, how little we can know in a gigantic sea of knowledge. Um, like we know this. Wake up at two thirty in the morning after hearing a weird sound in your house and tell me that you don't know these things. Um, like that's the time of the day where you're most vulnerable to be able to just say, "Yeah, I'm small. I don't know enough. I don't. I may not be that good at what I'm doing." But it's a healthy place to be because it then always pushes us to a spot where it's like, "Well, what more could I learn? What other people could I meet and get to know more about and understand more about? What is that?" When we stop that pursuit, it becomes a weird thing. Mm. You know, it's like uh, you know when when 
people retire and they were very active and then they just kind of sit and you're like, I don't know what it is, but something bothers me about the change you've made in your life. And it's like, oh, you, you just become stagnant. Yeah, there's stagnancy is bad. Well, I mean, it's, it's hardwired into us. Like if you go to sleep, you're pract- you, there's, not, there's nothing that says that we're vulnerable more so uh, to not knowing than the fact that every day we have to kind of go to sleep. Yeah. Like we actually have to sleep, which is a very vulnerable yeah. position to be in because you are not awake. <laughs> therefore, you're not <laughs> conscious. Therefore, anything could happen. And it's completely outside the field of your knowledge. Mm-hmm. So uh, independent reality is persisting outside of your mind. And you're relying on, upon that. You're submitted to it. Mm-hmm. You've submitted to the fact that the framework of the house is going to hold up and the brick and the mortar. And like you're submitting to all these facts that have nothing to do with your, the exertion of your effort. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're finite and contingent beings. Um, and so our knowledge is uh, relational uh, based on proximity, which is an argument for why we must cultivate a better society through art and design. It's because there's... Um, there are things up for grab that are non-neutral. Mm-hmm. And so um, when that comes into the personal sphere of our own existence, and Gareth is talking about the, the size of our dreams, um, obtaining to those. Um, the pract- so the, it's also helpful just to get a, uh, uh, our minds around the, what I was saying before about the elusive nature of things. The elusivity exceeds the bounds of the given thing, mm-hmm. but is part and parcel to it. So what happens is we dream elusively. We, we aspire to more in that exceeds the boundaries of our own um, agency, our own ontology. Like, um, you know, we are uh, aware of ourselves as much as we can be, but we can sort of project into the future, dream into possible worlds, hypothetical worlds. And so you spend a lot of time doing that. And then the reality sets in. And um, the, the only way forward actually is so one of the ways that I, I've thought about it, and this has just been, I've been living this out roughly now for the last decade for sure, is um, whenever there's a discrepancy with the, between the way I dream and the, and the way I do, um, I've looked at that conflict as the opportunity to marry those two things together more closely. So where I'm dissatisfied in the work is a way of calling into question like what I was dreaming about or what I wanted to have happen. It, it, it's in those spaces where I've found the opportunity to become smaller, like Gareth was saying. And, um, and when you become smaller, your field of vision becomes bigger because you actually better recognize what's in front of you. Like put it another way, we have an overestimated sense of ourselves. Yeah. And we predicate our success and failure based on an overestimated sense of self, mm, yeah. which means even when we succeed, it doesn't accord because we're actually our first assumption was we overestimated our ability and ourselves, our sense of self and what will happen if I get this and that. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want to slow down. But the thing is, that's to, in my mind, that's to Garrett's point about you got to kind of lean into it. Mm-hmm. Um, what you have to kind of, I think what I've had to do is I've had to um, acquire, I was saying earlier, acquire an appetite, a delight for the work that is proportioned to a smaller sense of my own self-understanding that I'm actually not um, fitted for uh, more than what I'm actually doing. Let me write that down. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's on a podcast. So. I, I'm not fitted for more. I, yeah. I'm not, if I, it's like, we're, here's the thing. By saying we're smaller is not saying we're unimportant. No. But I'm saying that we dream to, to we dream we fit a glove 
that is 10 times too big for us. Yeah. So once we do the work, there's something that doesn't square. You know, once we get into what we think we wanted to do, it doesn't match up. But some of it's not actually what you're doing. It's the way you envisioned yourself getting there. Yeah. And so when the reality sets in, the reality is um, got its own elusive nature to it, but it doesn't fill the glove in. And you either have to concede that you're not as big as you thought you were, or, you know, this is why a lot of people that are, um, what do you call that, um, sociopaths are successful. <laughs> Yeah, they don't have that. They just like climb up the charts in 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 their brutal business mm-hmm. folks. You know, they're CEOs and they're just mm-hmm. like attention deficit disorder. Which which other company am I going to take over? They don't have that at all. Yeah. So they're just rogue ambition. But if you if you if you're fortunate enough to have that, not be a sociopath, then you <laughs> then you're like, wait a minute, something's like off here. But the question is, it's like so. I'm always trying to peel back because I in in assessing my assumptions, and, and one of them was. I have, I had too high of a view of myself coming up. And so, um, when I would obtain goals, it just wouldn't resonate with me. And then, and then it was too easy for me to kind of go, well, it's because I, it's because I, I got to do more. And it's like, I wasted a lot of time not rejoicing in the opportunities I had, Mm. which would have taken me into a more earthened grounded path into human relationships and to friendships into delighting with, you know, um, I didn't understand the value. Like I've said recently a handful of times, like, you know, it art is best when it's made with and for your friends. And then you should just go out and make more friends, which is a way of saying multiply that relational constraint out. And there's always a joy to be shared with the gift giving meal of art with your friends. I never could afford to accept that as a proposition. Yeah. Because it seemed too easy and too already upon me. Yeah. Um, what I know now is that is the pathway to the time you're talking about when you're saying, I got to wait. But you don't really wait. You just proportion yourself down. Yeah. And you delight more in the friendships you have and in the audience that is there, which is a lot of times the people that know you the best. Mm-hmm. So part of the problem with vocational work is you get the work, but you're not known interpersonally. Yeah. That's what's missing, I think, a lot of times. Does that make so? If you can't scale yourself down, you can't afford to be known. Mm-hmm. So you have to be willing to be known, and you have to allow people to size you and say, "Yeah, I love that. I want to hang that in my house." Or, "Hey, could I have that scrap drawing you did? I really love that." In their yeah. minds, that's the best thing they've ever seen. And in your mind, you're like, "I can't let you have that. That's garbage. I don't want anybody to see that." And that was done three or four years ago. What I've learned to do is go, yeah, you could have that. I would love for you to have that. You know, like, um, it's like me, it's like you coming to my fridge and me only having a, so much food to give you. And from your perspective, that would be the best thing anybody could give you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Am I yeah. willing to step into your shoes to know and be known to realize that the peanut butter and jelly sandwich I'm about to make you is actually heaven to you right now? Even though I know I normally can cook a really good taco. Yeah. But, I mean, everything has to change. Mm. But when you're known, it settles you. And when you're knowing people, it settles something in you. And in that transactional or that mutually enhancing space, it frees you to the work. Yeah. Then the work starts to become seasoned and textured. And it it's still going to be work. It still have days where you don't want to do it. But um, it makes it, you're you're more able to delight in it, which is not a negation of having bigger dreams and doing more with your capacity 
but I think the relational constraints help us have an understanding of our proportion. Yeah. Hence the hand in the glove. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your sense of scale in a virtual world is gone. Your sense of scale in art school where we pour on top of people endless you can do it just enlarges the person so much that there's just like wonky like I could do anything. Yeah. And the world doesn't doesn't work that way. You actually can't do anything. Like it, there will be friction, there will be tension. Mm-hmm. So then we either acknowledge that or we live in bifurcated spaces. I dream big and nothing's never enough. Yeah. Or, you know what I'm saying? There's nothing that's yeah. ever enough and we just persist. And so that's my point about saying like, I had to shrink so I can see these things go like that. Yeah. Well, I think it's also, uh, not only does it work within the interpersonal space when we talk about that, but it also makes us uh, regain perspective on the work itself. Um, cause I know that like, as I'm doing like client work, I have a tendency to think more often of my, the total body of my work and how this contributes to it than for me to actually interact with the piece in a singular way. Oh yeah. And so what happens is I have a piece that is not intended to be in conversation with the rest of my work that becomes in conversation with the rest of my work and therefore maybe doesn't do all it should as a single piece for a client or for something else. And that can be difficult. So we have that same sort of scale, uh, the, the problematic scale that you're talking about, Ryan, I think we can have that as well within the work. So it's not, so I'm not, I'm not seeking to actually know the piece I'm working with right now. I'm not seeking to really be involved in this thing because I'm thinking about the five other things with it. And so we have a very hard time, especially in, a, in, in an ever evolving rapid context that we live in, um, I have a very hard time of just slowing myself down and just sitting with my work the way that we want people to after we've completed it. I'm not willing to give it that that kind of time and space individually mm-hmm. as I'm in the creation making process. But I'm expecting that on the tail end from somebody who's going to sit with it, look at it, use it, enjoy it, whatever it is. Um, and so there's a lot of shortchanging that can happen. Uh, like you're talking about relationally. We shortchange a lot of things. Uh, you know, we don't move into those spaces of knowing people and being known by others. But we also shortchange our work where we don't actually exist to know that work itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I've been, and this is, you know, coming from the design side of things, one thing that's been fantastic over the last few years of becoming more uh, and more knowledgeable and having deeper, more intimate friendships with people who are in things like painting and sculpture um, is that I get to see how long they live with their work. Which is, I mean, it's not something that you and I deal with a lot, Abby, because yeah. we're you're on a deadline. You got a, a turnaround. You know, it's kind of quick. Uh, you're using digital tools, so people expect that it's going to be quick, even if it can't be quick. Um, but having the chance to kind of live and have the scale of like, oh, here's a piece that I'm that they're sitting with for a, for a while. Like that's actually fantastic because it is unfolding in front of them. They are, you know, as, as baddies as it might sound to some people out there, like they're having a relationship with this piece as they're going through and creating it. And that's not, that's not a scale that I tend to have as a designer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I even, you know, talking about living with the work, that's one thing like this year, one of my resolutions was to just like paint some, Mm -hmm. like just play around with paint because I I never really do that unless it's for a specific purpose for a job. And I guess over a year ago now at the last current art fair, I was sitting and talking with the two of you and Ryan, your advice to me was like, why don't you try painting larger again? Mm -hmm. 
And at the time I was like, oh, I'm not going to do that. It's going to take too long. Like there's no <laughs> way <laughs> because like most of my paintings are five by seven when mm -hmm. I do paint. And I'm like, all right, can I get this thing done in like seven hours or less? Mm -hmm. Like one day, get it done. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've like turned off that idea of like sitting, understanding what's happening, reacting, mm -hmm. like having this live interaction with the painting that before I, I started understanding what illustration was, I loved so much. Mm -hmm. And I love being like, you know, I'm just going to go work on it for a couple of hours and then leave it mm -hmm. and then go away from it and then come back and see what it's doing and then do something else with it. And so I, I think that's one thing why you see um, this weird phenomenon of a lot of illustrators later in life wanting to do painting. Yeah. Most illustrators I've seen that I've, I've worked with or, you know, asked questions of are like, oh, well, I really want to do painting now. And I think it's for that very reason. Yeah. And I'm like, maybe, maybe I'm just figuring this out early and I yeah. should start a little bit earlier. Yeah, so see, what would it look like creatively to not pit these against each other, but just fuse that understanding in such a way that that is what shapes your understanding of, a, uh, of yourself as a maker so that they're not necessarily pitted against each other, but yeah. they're part and parcel in a way, which forces you to have to realign your self-understanding of like, like I think when we identify, like you were saying about the identity piece, like that, that's a, there's variability to that. So like if I'm more flexible to the variability of what my self understanding is, then um, the fusing of this is not a dilemma for me because they're not so rigid that they don't actually belong together. Yeah. And therefore, I'm not necessarily having to look at them as things I balance. Like I'm doing this now, I'm doing that now. Like because like you know, in my own way, I experienced that. Like I have a painting that I've been working on for a year and a lot of times I just stare at it and now I'm doing some things with it again, but I've acquainted myself with that. But then there's other stuff that I'm like, I got to get, get this done. Like I want this done now. Yeah. Um, but I don't really, I'm never dealing with the conflict of those differences. They all flow from the same self understanding of what it means to be a maker and the vocational sphere that I exist within. And, um, and none of that excludes me from hanging out with my friends and seeing that as, as, as valuable and even friends that don't know anything about what I do. I have friends yeah. that don't really understand or know what I do. And they don't need to. But what I mean by that is like it comes up when it comes up. Mm -hmm. You know, or I got kids. Like my kids understand me differently. Like like that all chips away at the anxiety I've felt about needing the work I do to carry everything in my life. And so the work has been freed when I've started to allow myself to be known by people, be vulnerable, have friends, like let people into my space, not require that they affirm me at a certain level of my art making ability, but just open the door widely. Yeah. Um, it's been, it's been really like soul nourishing. It's nice to not have everybody going when you get in the studio again, you know, like yeah. artists, like I'm around artists. Hey, yeah. when you've been you in the studio, you in the studio, it's like, um, I want to, I want to be able to celebrate the fact that I mowed my lawn today. Cause yeah. like <laughs> I hate mowing lawns. So I'm like, this is a victory for me. Like I noticed some grasshoppers and like, um, that practice, because life is going to go quickly. So that practice of slowing down is really a way of also, here's the rub. By doing that, you're actually setting up the ability to have content. Yeah. Because it's in reference to the people you know and love. And they are going to generate a lot of the passions and the cares and the concerns that you, like I was listening to a talk yesterday by the Avid brothers. I don't know if you're familiar with the no. group. So they're, they've done a lot of different work, but they're been making albums for 20 years. And they, they were talking about, um, this new album, which is kind of a return to like the work they did when they were young and they're coming out of North Carolina and there was like a North Carolina sound that they wanted. 
And so, um, just the, like, it's like so much of their sound was built out of the willingness to submit to their finitude and, and be in this like particular region and, and, and have these relationships. And so their music has a certain kind of personalness and depth to it that could only happen because they're actually having real relationships. Yeah. The internet makes us connected and I'm not anti-internet at all, but it flattens us to such an extent that we, we have like an internet aesthetic or internet understanding of each other. Mm -hmm. And there's a lack of messiness and tactility to that because we can just unfollow each other. We can stop liking each other's posts, but like, that human interaction that makes us the, the most human has to happen by inhabiting the spaces that we're in. And I think yeah. that's that's kind of part of what I was talking about with like feeling like I just have to wait yeah. for the experience. And I think that's that has been a lot of pressure is has been put on that because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Because not only was it like, okay, well, we have to stay away from each other, but I also was like, hey, I, I don't have a job. I need to move back to my parents' yeah. house and I don't know anyone else in this area. Mm -hmm. I don't get to see my friends as much and you know they might have jobs, so it's not like, yep. oh, we're on the phone all day or something like yeah. that. And, but, but given that, throughout um, you know, quarantine, throughout 2020, I knew that I, had, I have to get this project done for this grant that I got while I was still in school. And it's a series of portraits and I was like, mm. it's just going to be about everyday life during this weird time yeah and i pitched it like back in february i think and i got the grant so a lot has happened since then so i don't really know what direction it's going to take and i keep like planning on what the series is going to look like and then i'm like no i don't want that uh -huh. and i like take it a different action i'm like no i don't want that and i've taken some photos and have some moments though where i'm like okay this i don't just want to do for this grant that i know i need to get done because i have like an obligation but this is something where i'm like I just want to like paint that. Like I want to sit with that moment mm -hmm. and figure that out because I think there's like more of a universal experience in this very personal experience of mine than maybe in something that I would feel more comfortable posting on Instagram mm -hmm. to promote my work. And so like there's one moment where my grandmother came over to, would come over to our garage and put on a mask and my mom would put a trash bag over her and like wrap it around her and cut her hair during quarantine and she is now like starting to um, show symptoms of um, Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And so there was this moment though where it was me, my grandma, and my mom just sitting in my like trashed garage and my mom was just cutting her hair and we were all just sitting in silence. And I was like, why am I not like, this is why I think painting is so interesting because no one would ever ask for an illustration of this. Mm -hmm. No one would ever say, hey, can you paint your, your mom cutting your grandma's hair mm -hmm. in like a week and make sure that we're gonna put it yeah. like on the cover of something. That's never going to be a thing. But it was this moment I was just sitting there and I was like, I don't know why I can't quantify, but this feels more profound than anything that I'm working on and getting mm -hmm. paid for right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, even those those quieter moments that weren't even like, you know, me talking with people, me experiencing something that was really rich necessarily, I was like, this is what I, I want to do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, hey, uh, let me say, I, I love that. And here, yeah. here's why. It's it's because I, I would submit, this is could be very unpopular and sound very bad. I would submit to the fact that you're rightly recognizing the order of value in mm. mm. human interaction. Okay, so I would say he, uh, the chief end of all cultural practices is human relationships of one kind or another. Anything you do has someone in mind. Mm-hmm. 
So if you say, I made this for myself, you had a bunch of people in mind that you didn't want to see it. Yeah. So anything you do, you have someone in mind. You make a meal. You So all human activity has someone in mind. So at the end of all things uh, made, uh, conceived, thought, is someone else. That, that's uh, in the positive, the negative, and then the specifications of each action and so on. So what does that mean? Well, that means that the most profound experiences often are direct to human relationships. Yeah. The culture we make, while profound, is best understood when it's in support of that or understanding that relationship. So when you when you glimpse rightly like what you saw, it helps to put art in its proper perspective as meaningful, important, um, uh, signaling and rendering profound experiences, but not so much so that it eclipses the most direct experiences we have, which oftentimes can't be recorded. Yeah, they they don't they don't translate. Um, they're ephemeral in that sense. Um, and so when you when your or, order of value, I think for me at least, this is just me talking about myself. Even it's like once art wasn't stressed to replace that, then it was free to be art, and then all of a sudden I actually enjoyed it. Because I was never asking it to be more than what I experience when I like, like, for instance, like, it's just going to sound sappy, but like, if I wake up in the morning, and my son sometimes will come down first, and messy headed six year old, and he'll crawl up in my lap. And then we'll talk for a little bit, or I'll read out loud to him, or we'll just sit quietly, and he'll, he'll just randomly punch me, like, he'll just be like, and then smirk, like, you ready to wrestle, dad? Like, but that, um, I'm tempted to discard but that is uh, more profound than than painting. Now, here's the problem: that doesn't it doesn't mean that painting's not important. It's just that that actually is more important. Yeah, it just is. And these are not competing realities; they're just proportioned to each other. That's kind of what I meant when I said by scaling down. When yeah. you have that, then you start to like. Mm, I don't know, like like my kids, the the goofy album we made. Yeah, yeah. The you know kind of the. Ken, Ken Gilberson, like my kids will sing that. So they know that whole album by heart now. And so in some yeah, ways, the more profound experience has been my kids randomly together singing that whole album mm-hmm. down to inflection. <laughs> They've internalized it. Yes. So we're sitting at the table like that's the point of art yeah. is, is it got into them. And now we're having this internalized experience together around a table that no one else knows. They don't yeah. need to know. <laughs> it's, it's elusive to something more. And it's immediate in that sense. And I am okay. I'm settled enough to, to have a, a large view of it and really, really rejoice in it and know that it was really important for us to do that project with Ken. Like for us to do that produces these kinds of effects. Mm-hmm. These kinds of effects are specific. We're not singing any other songs. You know, we're, my kids aren't making faces any other way. They're, we're all yeah. doing it together this way. And I think at its core, that's what art does. And the difference, I think, when it goes into like an incredible book like that is you, um, like this book you brought today that you designed and did the uh, covers for, uh, that is the kind of thing that people like me love but never know who the artist is. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, you just get to have a conversation with someone who could say, I, I could tell you, like, if I saw that and I didn't know you, I would love that. But you just never know that I did. But same, same as like people that like have seen my work in a gallery. So it's like 
you know, that's why I say it's like not a negation of what you do. It's the addition of relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes, does that make sense? Like, yeah, no, for yeah sure. they're not competing. They're just different. And, and I think in art school, we're made to feel like if you're not all about your work, you're not serious. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, um, I've been told that lie so many times. If I got married, I'm not going to be a good artist. If you have kids, you're gonna be, it's like I do more than I did when I was not having all this. I don't know how. Mm-hmm. So then people are like, how do you do it all? I was like, how do you not? Yeah. You know, it's stressful one way or the other. I was anxious when I wasn't had, had didn't, I didn't have responsibility. So I'm like, pick your poison. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I do know my life is rich. And I don't mean that like in a congratulatory way. I, it, without knowing it, I mean, I spent a lot of time depressed. So I'm not saying it as like, I've rocked it the whole time. I'm saying it's like, oh my gosh, if you can figure some of this out now, you're you will be so much better for it because I spent too much time depressed. Yeah. Well into my late thirties. Yeah. I'm 45. So well, I'm going through it right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It. yeah. So it's like it's real. It's it's yeah. a confrontation yeah. between our expectations and and I don't got it all figured out. Like I'm not I'm not immune to getting depressed again. Um uh in in getting in Laura. I mean, I'm a dreamer. Anybody that knows me knows I can't stop. So it's just like, how do I proportion my tree? How much do I tell people? <laughs> yeah. Well, I've gotten that. I don't know if, if my mom plans this, but every year around Christmas, she's like, what are your goals in life? Mm-hmm. Like just randomly if we're like in the car or something. And when I was still in school, I was like, well, you know, I want to get a medal from the Society of Illustrators and I want to work for this, this and this company and all this kind of stuff. And she, she was like horrified. She was like, Abby, like that, that's not healthy. That's all just job related. Like why, like what else do you want to do? And I was like, well, that's kind of, that's kind of what I want to do. Like, I just want to work on this stuff. And then this past year she was asking me that. And I was like, you know, I'd love to like own a home one day and like have it be near people that I love. Mm -hmm. Or like, I'd love to like travel to some different places. You know, I'd love to, to be an aunt at some point, (laughs) like just stuff like that. And I was thinking about it and I was like, it is just, I'm, I think the, the switch has been realizing that work can't be my life. Mm -hmm. And it's like those moments where I was like traveling or with friends, like those are the happiest moments of my life. The things I'm the proudest about are, are the work things. And I definitely want that to be a part of it. Sure. But I think that, and I, I, I would be curious to see how many people coming out of undergrad and starting to work would also feel this way Yeah. of just the switch from, oh, I really need to get the job to I have the job. It's fine. I'm happy to have the job. But like I want more from life, mm-hmm. not just my job. Yep. Yeah. I think that's it. I couldn't. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. And it's huge. And it's a, it's a fantastic place to get to because, uh, you know, it, we all went through like middle school and stuff and we saw like uh, in <laughs> oh. high school and we saw like people who were so like just destroyed over like uh, the person that they wanted to be in a relationship with that they couldn't be in a relationship with. And we, and we were just like, what, what a, there. what a busted way to do life. And <laughs> then we get out and we do the exact opposite thing with work. Yeah. Uh, and we sit here and we go, it's fine. You're okay. It's all good. Um, instead of realizing that like maybe, maybe there's like a middle ground where, all the things that aren't work actually do have a whole lot of value. And all mm-hmm. the things that are work actually have a whole lot of value. And when we can rightly integrate those things into a life that doesn't prioritize, um, or not prioritize because priority is a different thing, but doesn't demonize one over the other, um, you can actually get to a space where you feel like less, uh, I don't know, uh, frantic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like, because there's, there's like a franticness that comes from 
those periods of life where it's like, oh, you just have to work right now. Like you just have to do it. Yeah. And there's a franticness, uh, you know, like when you're starting those like dating relationships that are just it's super like you get older and you just roll your eyes at it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it is I think we do the opposite thing when we get out of undergrad, when we get out of grad school, when we when we kind of start life, so to speak, in a professional sense. We sit down and we 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 steer the ship hard into that side of things, and then we I think we get into a little bit of melancholy because we're like, oh, this can't be it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's true, but you know, I think uh, you know not to not to change course too much, but you're you're talking about the work that you're proud of, and you've kind of hinted at some of the stuff you've done, and and I would hate to not talk about this <laughs> amazing project. Yeah, because I mean, at this point, I mean, geez, it's been it's been a year since like. Because I remember you saying something about this to me and just being like, well, I don't know, like, it might be a thing. And, uh, you know, I've kind of been talking to somebody and they said it might might happen. I don't, how long ago was that? Like, when did this so, process with Criterion start? So the way that it kind of came about is I was taking a senior portfolio class um, with Sterling. And um, I was working on a pitch that I wanted to put together for a book company that I wanted to work for. And um, I was putting the pieces together, and it was portraits like of, of friends and professors for Murder on the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. And um, as I was putting that together, I was in class and showing Sterling the project I was doing. And he was like, you know, I'm going to New York next week because there's the ceremony for the Society of Illustrators. And he had gotten a gold medal for the Abraham Lincoln yeah. book that he did. Beautiful. Um, and so he was like... I'm going to be doing like an introduction for Eric Skillman, who's the Criterion Collection art director there because he's getting like an art directing achievement award because he's awesome. (laughs) And he was like, can I give him like your card? And I was like, what do you think? I'm going to say no. Like, yeah, you Uh, can give him my card. No, Sterling, don't do that. (laughs) I can do this myself, Sterling. (laughs) For real. So like, Sterling's great. He's great. Yeah. I I gave him my business card and he was like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, pass, pass your name along because I think you'd be good for some of the projects there. Um, and I had sent Eric a couple emails before being like, here's who I am. I'd love to work with you. Here's my portfolio and things. And so, um, Sterling came back and just like, like randomly was like, oh, hey, it went well. Like, we'll talk about later. And I was like, oh, okay. And then, um, I was taking another class with him that was, we were working with NASA. Mm -hmm. Um, and my dad came to talk for the class because, he has experience in aviation. Yeah. So um, he was going to come and, and wanted to meet Sterling. And so I went and got lunch with the two of them. And Sterling was like, so you should know that I think you're going to get hired by Criterion Collection. And I started crying in the middle of Kava. And I was like, no way. And I was like, crying my dad was like. in there. the middle of Kava. <laughs> and my dad like was was just like. Pat, Pat, like, you're fine. Like, it'll be Your good. Your dad didn't cry? No. Come on, Dad. Dad's, he's, a pi- he's a pilot. Dad's a Top Gun he's, pilot. Yeah, he's Top Gun. He's, he's, he's in steel. I'm just picturing Tom Cruise not crying. Oh, No, my I'm God. totally kidding. I'm just joking. No, he, he's definitely the type where he'll be like, you know, I'll tell him like, hey, I got a big job doing this. And he's like, oh, that's nice. And then won't say anything about it. And then if someone like comes over to the house, he's like, now look at what my daughter did. Now look at how cool yeah, this thing is. And so I was like, funny. oh, so nice. you are proud of me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... I, I heard about this and he was like, nothing's confirmed. Like, don't don't go crazy, but you might get hired by Criterion Collection. And I was like, just sitting there on this information, like waiting for the email to come. Literally the day after that, I got an email from Eric Skillman saying, hey, I'm the art director of the Criterion Collection. I'm like, no, you're kidding. I've emailed you like 80 times. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and, and he offered me the job doing the Fellini box set for mm. the 100th anniversary of 
Federico Fellini's birthday. Um, and so I lost my mind. I, my, I was actually on the phone with my dad when I got the email mm. and he was on a golf course in Florida. And so he's just like, there's an alligator over there. And he's telling me what's going on. And I was like, shut up. And he was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? Are you okay? And I was like, I got a job. And it's at Criterion Collection. So I did that. You know, I called my friends. I actually talked to Gareth and I was like, is this budget okay? <laughs> like, what do I do? Um, Pay me a million dollars in yeah, coins. I was like, I have no idea. I've only ever been paid like $5 for a print. I want gift cards to Amazon. <laughs> But oh, yeah, so I accepted the job and um, they they asked me to do the cover with a portrait of Fellini and then the interior booklet, which is 15 characters from the different films that are included in the set. Um, and it was it was pretty great. It got disrupted by COVID. Originally, I got the job <laughs> at the COVID. end. I know yeah. I had the job at the end of February and it was due in April. And I ended yeah. up turning it in in August. Mm. Um, and there was just so much happening because they were trying to get interviews from people in Italy who were his collaborators. And then Italy went into lockdown. So they had to yeah. wait to do that. And, you know, they weren't in the office. And so it was just and, you know, I was moving. Mm. I had to figure out how to get back to my parents place and put stuff into storage. And it, it was COVID made it a little bit of a, a nightmare just in terms of chaos. But um Eric's an amazing art director to work with. And so that that happened. And um, the Society of Illustrators show was coming up. And I was like, well, I guess I'll submit it. And it got in. Mm -hmm. So it was I, I still can't believe that that was the the first project I got to do. But um, that led to hearing from a lot of other people mm -hmm. that I would like to work with. I got offered a job with The New York Times and it ended up not working out. Um, but you know, like I've been in touch with Vanity Fair and Entertainment Weekly and all these people now wired and mm -hmm. New York Times, New York Post. And, um, that led to me getting another job with Criterion, um, which I can't talk about yet. But <laughs> Dang it. Very hush hush. <laughs> um, and then that led to that other book job, which, which ended up not panning out, but it was just like, I, I literally just sent the images of the, the Fellini portraits and this art director was like, yeah, sure, you can, I'll, I'll let you try this out. And I'm like, oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm just waiting on them to announce the new one. I'm excited about that one because I got to have a lot more creative freedom wow. over that. Um, and I'm also, I do frequent work with this um, online journal called The Bitter Southerner now, which yes. is awesome. Mm -hmm. And I actually just got an email from them yesterday. I'm doing two new jobs with them. Fantastic. This week. It's, it's so. a fantastic, it's a fantastic thing. Uh, Bitter Southerner is great. Yeah, they're awesome. And they're, they're a delight to work with too. They're very casual about it. Yes. Like I, I first got in touch with Dave, their creative director on Instagram. He just saw me, he's like, I like your stuff. You want to do a job? And I was like. This is the easiest. The Graham, the Graham. <laughs> it's so funny. I, I, when I was like nineteen, we and I was wanting to be an illustrator, but just was not good enough. You know, in a lot of ways, didn't have the right mindset. But the Society Illustrators at this little school I was at would have these shows in their gallery, and it was like an annual thing. And I just remember you, you size everybody up, and you're like, dude, I. Like I got so much learning and just like, who are these people? Yeah. You know, so just in awe all the time. You're just like in awe. And so I'm just sitting here laughing because I'm like, I asked that question when I was 19 and I didn't get like an in-person answer until like now. Yeah. <laughs> who are those people? It's you. <laughs> You're those people. You know, so yeah. it's like, 
26 <laughs> years later. <laughs> I'm getting an answer to that. Like, how did it happen? Like, how did, you know, I mean, because I remember you, you just marvel at this work and like the, the your field of vision is so narrow. So you have like no context for how how this work's being made, how it's existing in the world. Um, it all at the time was just so strange and like yeah. kind of mystical. You just fill in the gaps. It still you know? is yeah. like because, mm-hmm. you know, I, w- I was lucky enough to like meet people who were really like in the industry. And so I was just like, so like, how do you get your job? Like, how are you emailing back and forth? Like just like mm-hmm. the fundamentals of how is this even working? Because it is like if you try and look it up online, <laughs> I would look up like how yeah. to send like how to format postcards to send to art directors. And it's just like good luck figure it out yeah mm-hmm. and so it was, it was very weird just like getting these very specific answers because it all is like well you get a postcard and you make sure this this and this is on it and then you put who the client was on the bottom here and then you send it to the art director's office and then you wait for a response and you follow up two months later with an email and i was like who designed this yeah like where is this coming from yeah how are these rules upheld <laughs> yeah um, it's a rule violation. You did it in under two months. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean it's definitely changed since COVID. It's like, yeah, I don't send physical mail anymore because yeah. no one's in their office. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's weird. I, I mean, I find new illustrators all the time who are like, I have five medals from the Society of Illustrators, and I'm like, where the hell have you been? What? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Okay, <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's always shocking when you find people that you're like you gravitate towards and you're like, how did I, and then you find out they've been around for a while. You're like, how did I ever not hear of you? Yeah. It's just, uh, it's encouraging on the one hand. Cause you're like, you, you know, you never can know enough that there isn't still more to know. So like, there's always people that, that are just doing it and that you're, yeah. you, you'll yeah. be excited about if you ever cross paths. And that know? was one thing when I went to the illustration Academy, I went for two weeks and the one week was comics and you had like, like Bill Sienkiewicz was there and like critiqued my comic and I was like, oh, my God. Um, and you had Natalie Hall, who did, um, like, all of the charcoal drawings from um, The Shape of Water. Mm-hmm. And, like, all these people who were working for these crazy companies. And then I went for the editorial week and met with, you know, C.F. Payne and um, Ted Kinsella and all of these people. And they were all, like, giving talks and demos and just rattling off names. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the most shocking part to me is I was like, how did you find out who all these people are? Mm -hmm. And most of them found out, like, Mm pre-internet. So I was just like, where are these, like, books of these illustrators that I've never heard of? And they were, you know, praising all these people who are working in, like, Germany and and stuff like that. And I would try and Google them, and there's nothing. So it was all just, like, hardcore, like, hard copies of... Anthologies and crazy, awesome people. And I mean, that was one thing that it was a valuable resource in just creating a visual library Mm -hmm. that I don't think you get a lot if you're in school, which is frustrating. That's that's huge. The visual, the visual library, especially like I've only have limited experience with illustration in the sense that I work with illustrators and wanted to be an illustrator for the first couple of years and then just went the other direction. But um, what I was learning in the 90s is how much. Uh, technique and access to artists was art. Like people then were fighting to preserve, which was not being preserved. So, you know, like it's like, no, there's all kinds of stuff that's going away because the, because technology is coming. And so like these techniques that are like illustrator techniques um, and just coming into contact with that for a brief time and artists that you could only know about if you have access to to some hard copy, but then you're like, how would I even know who to look for? And um, 
yeah, that information dies. Yeah. It just, it I mean, that's what, that's what freaks me out the most, even in, in my own uh, self is I carry a lot of what other generous people gave to me. Mm. And so that's part of the urgency that I think I have as a teacher is like, it's not like my stuff. It's like Ryan's, it's like a lot of people's stuff yeah. that mm. was given to them. And you're like, I want to give as much that I, I can away. So it continues because it's valuable, even if we we have turned our eye away from it for a, a brief amount of time. Yeah, you know to focus on something else. Well, you know. I even remember um, like I figured out who um, J.C. Liondecker was so late in the game. I was always just like, yeah, that's probably Norman Rockwell. And then I figured out who he was and was looking at just like the way he painted clothing and everything. And I was like, okay, now this is amazing. And it's I I actually like him more than Rockwell just because of how designed it is. Mm. And there was an exhibit of his. They they brought a whole bunch. Um, from a collection out in California to North Carolina at the Rinalda House, which is this old, you know, preserved building. And um, after w- winter, you know, finals and everything, me and a friend drove out last year to go and see it. And I remember looking at these paintings, and I spent like probably three hours in this tiny little gallery they had, just like staring at them, like holy hell. And you could see the the way that even Lion Decker's stuff transitioned, not just to Norman Rockwell, obviously. But just like, I was like, well, I can see this in like half of my professor's work who are teaching mm-hmm. me illustration. Mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. see this in like the illustration annual I'm getting from the Society of Illustrators from mm-hmm. this year. And you're just like, oh, it literally all is just collecting bits and pieces mm-hmm. of visual language that are interesting and incorporating it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, yeah. The con- <laughs> There's always this, like, like a column, like they're kind of like heavy lifters mm-hmm. that had foundational influence, but they're buried under the, the ones they influenced. So you, you, depending how much you dig, you'll, you'll bump across them and you go, oh, this is like the source. Yeah. This is like one of the heavy lifters, the plateau establishers. And, um, but they're often always the ones that are least known except for the ones that are the makers, that yeah. are the influenced. But everybody else by extension, it's just not relevant. You yeah. know, it's not directly relevant in the most immediate sense. But it is, you know, I keep finding, you know, I found a, influencer thinker a couple of years ago that was underneath all of these other people I was reading. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, this is like the source, you know? And then you're yeah. like, Oh my gosh, this really is the source. Mm-hmm. And, um, then you're like, Whoa, it's just, you, you appreciate it. Cause it's like, um, not coming forward. They're not popular or something, you know, it's like the, the person who says the musician's musician, you know, they're, a, they're an artist artist or they're, that means something. It's almost like more cred than, than being famous. It's like, when other famous people are like, no, that's the, that's the person. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, like the person who taught Ray Charles, you know what I mean? Like people <laughs> yeah, know Ray Charles, real. but his teacher was huge for him. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, it's like, do you want, which one do you want to be? Yeah. And it's always <laughs> exciting. Cause I mean, I've, I definitely part of the learning experience is trying to imitate what they're doing and figure out sure. how, how is this artist making this thing look like that? And I definitely went through that. And the exciting part is when you like, take it and adjust it enough that it becomes a new thing mm-hmm. and you're like now that's it that's like my probably my favorite thing and why one thing i wish i had done more is like more master copies mm-hmm. because the way that i learned to paint digitally is doing a lion decker master copy on the ipad wow and mm-hmm. trying to make it look exactly like an interwoven sock ad yeah and add like grain and everything and it taught me everything i know about like painting blending and filters in procreate wow and so, I mean, I, I love that kind of stuff and just seeing the way it. Do you think that, down. do you think that there's a lack of, uh, like, I don't know. I mean, I teach an AFO. So do you think there's a lack of supporting what you just described 
in art school at this point. Like meaning copying masters and um like really committing to the copy. I mean, I remember copying of Velasquez. I forget it's it's the one where Christ is like reaching across the table. So one arm is going back into space, the other arm is projected forward, and then the two figures are leaning in. Mm-hmm. And I copied it in like a monochrome surprise. I copied it in orange. <laughs> um and it was one of the better paintings I'd made, but it's yeah. because I was copying and no one's ever seen it. I, I covered it, but it's because I was copying Velasquez. So yeah. it's like, it was nowhere near Velasquez. I did, it wasn't one-to-one, but it was teaching me so much. Um, but I remember feeling like the, sh- like a little bit of like weirdness about doing master copies because it was competing with my, uh, thinking that I needed to have like my own real estate in the game and I needed my own recognition. And this idea of that was competing with the learning for me. Yeah. Um, do you know what I'm saying? Like, so, I mean, I just wonder, like you spoke about doing a master copy very freely and you express the value of it very well. I don't always hear that from people. Yeah. You know? I mean, <clears throat> I've done master copies where it didn't help me at all. And if, if anything, I was just like, I, I, I think it's helpful when it's something that you're like, how are they making it look like that? Mm-hmm. And you're trying to figure out a certain technique. Yeah. Cause I had to do a lot of like figure master copies from like Michelangelo and Rubens and things mm-hmm. like that. And in, in it was helpful just figuring out anatomy and, you know, sizing everything and all of that in proportions. But um, the the one project I did, my professor, it was in communication arts, and she literally was like, you can pick any piece you want. Mm-hmm. Like, do a grayscale little thumbnail of it, figure out where the lighting is, and then you can do it on Photoshop or in Illustrator. And I did a little bit in Procreate, too, mm-hmm. because it saved time. But... <laughs> um, I think what was helpful about it is that, you know, I saw a girl who was trying to copy a Botticelli mm-hmm. uh, and I saw a girl who was doing an, uh, a piece that was from an an- like a screenshot of an anime that she liked. Mm-hmm. And then I saw someone who was doing like a Norman Rockwell and then I was doing a Lion Decker. And so people were pulling from all these things that they liked and you saw the way that it helped with their digital understanding. Yeah. And I think in that sense, it was helpful. Mm. Um, but I definitely can see what you mean about it. Maybe... Cause, cause at the time I was like, this is the best thing I've ever made. And it took me 20 hours and it's not even mine. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I think there, there's a give and take with it. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So what uh, I would say like from all this, so we've talked, there's just so many things I'm trying to just see like where, like, are there any holes in the conversation we've had over the last you know, almost two hours? Um, and I think, you know, one of the questions I have is, uh, you know, you've talked about the work you're doing now, the way you're kind of viewing work. Um, so I don't know. I kind of want to piggyback off your mom. And I kind of want to go back to that question you were, that she was asking you and say, like, so with all of this, with the work you've done, with the people who have reached out to you as potential clients, um, with some of the things that you're, you've been expressing about, like, putting, like, maybe moving in. Uh, some slightly different directions of work or incorporating some of your past more fine art activities into it. Like what's next? What do you, what are you hoping to move into? What are some things you're looking forward to in the next coming years? It's hard because I, part of me wants to create like a schedule of things where like, all right, so in January I'll be finishing this and then in February I'm doing this. And then by August I'll have all of this done. Um, but realistically, I'm I'm waiting for the next Criterion project to come out, mm-hmm. and I want to send that out to a bunch of people, mm-hmm. which I'm hoping will yield some new work, mm-hmm. new clients, um, and it's a bit different than all of the portrait work I've done before, so I'm hoping that that will open things up a little bit. Um, I'm taking a class 
for mm-hmm. 10 weeks on visual storytelling. Nice. And so I actually want to develop my portfolio more. The reason I signed up for it is because after doing the book job, I was like, I need to figure out how to draw narratively, how to do story-based work where it's it's still my work mm-hmm. because I was like forcing portraiture <laughs> into kind of this mold that I didn't like. And so I want to basically allow myself the time to develop that work. And I think by taking a class and having this accountability with another person and with, with classmates, that'll help. So I'm doing that. Um, and that starts at the end of the month. Uh, I run Patreon. So I work on that every month and I create like a time lapse, a process video, um, printable content, all sorts of things every month for that. But personally, like I want to start painting again. Mm. That's the big one for me. Mm-hmm. is I've already sketched out all of these ideas for paintings that could be like 30 by 40 or 18 by 24, which is like the size I worked on in AFO. Mm-hmm. And when I was like really just experimenting and I want to get back to that a little bit and make space for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything. And I, I don't want to be like, it's just for me. I'm like, no, I can, I want to promote it later. Yeah, yeah. I'll take it and be like, does someone want to show this in a gallery? <laughs> does anyone want to buy the painting? I, yeah. I'm fine with that. But I do want to take the time with it and not be like, I have to get this done by the end of the week. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I, it can take a year. That's fine. Um, so there's that. And then also creating more physical um, things. Like I've thought about, what if I started like, making you know not just jewelry but like what if I started making like clothing what Mm -hmm. if I started like printing like creating artwork to be printed on fabric Mm -hmm. and then making Mm -hmm. that into something so I think it's there's a natural progression that happens where you get out of school you get the job you're like cool and then you're like all right next thing not going to be related to the job Mm -hmm. and I'm in that space which is what this most of this conversation is no that's that's good I, I, I like that um because I think, you know, I, I had the same experience. I came out of school and within the first couple of years, I was like, okay, what can I make with my hands that I can then touch with my hands and can live in the real world? <laughs> um, because, you know, everything, I mean, is uh, mediated by the screen, you know, and it's right there. And, and like, screeniated. <laughs> screeniated. So, yeah, it was just like, you know, it was nice to have that. So, yeah, I think that's, I think it's some good stuff. Um, so do you do you have any timeline for when the next Criterion thing is going to come out? Like anytime we can, people can we can look for it. That I I actually don't know. What I if we saw know. a peak of it and we don't know what it's for, but we saw it? Is that allowed to say? Am I allowed to say I saw it? No, I didn't yeah, see you, it. No, I fine. just I'm seeing it in my mind. <laughs> I'm just believing that it looks really good. Eric, if you're listening to this, like I didn't show it to anyone else. <laughs> no one else saw it. Listen. I'm just I'm deriving it. About. I'm I'm basing it off of like my mystical powers of perception, and I'm yeah. imagining it looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that works. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, we're with, believing in you. <laughs> we are. With with this job, I I didn't ask. I probably should have asked, but I was just like, oh, it'll come out at some point. And I was working on a job for Bitter Southerner, and I was downstairs like in the zone, just like knocking this thing out. And my mom comes downstairs and she's just like, oh, hey, did you see the Criterion website? Because your thing's out. And I was like, I had no idea. And so I go on Instagram and it's like trailers out, things posted. And I'm like scrambling because I'm like, I have to post it now and I can publish it on my website and all this kind of stuff. So they, they didn't really tell me. They didn't warn me. I don't think that's necessarily a priority. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> It's actually yeah, yeah. funny but because when uh, when it came out, the reason I found out is I saw an ad. 
And I was like, I was like, oh, this is cool. I didn't know it was out yet. This is cool that Abby's posting this. And I was like, this isn't Abby. Yeah. I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. I saw some of that. It was very <laughs> weird. And like I went on the Criterion website and for a week or two, it was like when you went to Criterion.com, it was just my piece. Mm, yeah. And I was like, that's surreal. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was in the New York Times gift guide for 2020. Whoa. And so I like saw that and it was just like for the, for the cinema lover in your life. And I'm like, oh, my God. History. <laughs> that's Dude, so cool. That's that's that's, the, that's when you like kind of mourn the fact that like people don't buy newspapers anymore. Yeah. And it's like, uh, like I have like a screenshot of this or I, something. I did take a screenshot. You know, and it's like, <laughs> but then like up in my attic, I've got these like stacks of newspapers from stuff like that from back in the day that like, where's that artifact now? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, so all that's legit and it sounds like you get a lot of stuff on your plate. So what, uh, where where can people find you? Where can they your, stalk you and your yeah. mini activities? Well, well, when can we find out and see what you're actually working on when it comes out after yeah. they release it and then they tell you, <laughs> including the paintings that I'm now going to bug you about because exactly. you talked about one. We can talk that. about that. Yeah, that'd be, that, that might be a post podcast discussion. <laughs> um, but yeah, I am on Instagram at Abby underscore Giuseppe. I'm on Twitter at Abigail Giuseppe. My website is abigailgiuseppe.com. Pretty standard. Um, and then I'm also on Patreon. If you look up Abigail Giuseppe on Patreon, I post oodles of like exclusive content every month if you're looking for process videos with my voice, which you have now heard. <laughs> or um, I post like exclusive paintings, um, early sales go up on there, all that kind of stuff. And sangria recipes because I'm a big fan of sangria. I love the, so, I, I love this, the spray of things across there. Yeah. There's That's great. There's a little extra stuff so in there. Full circle. 19th century. Spinster. Spinster. I mean, here's the thing. <laughs> I, <laughs> so. Gareth brought it up. I just, <laughs> I didn't want to like leave that as like a, a close an unclosed, like that loop needs to be closed. Like we, yeah. I mean, I just want to know personally. It's, yeah. it's not like some like very specific inside joke. I think it's just that I, I love like historical anything. And I especially love the 19th century and just the transition in the Victorian era of fashion and culture. I think it's fascinating. Um, and I'm also, um, uh, perpetually have been <laughs> single. So I was like, let's throw it up in the bio for anyone listening. I'm not going to lie, Abby. One day, if I ever get like uh, massively wealthy where I can just have a single room dedicated to just like, you know, uh, mahogany and rich, rich Corinthian leather, um, I'm Hell going yeah. to reach out to you and commission wallpaper. Oh, I'd do it. Because like your pattern work, like, yeah, I I just want a room that is that. Um, I want Gareth to become Rich Mahogany. (laughs) (laughs) So that we all have, there's there's something in it for all of us. Oh, my God. But yeah, Yeah. what does I say? 19th century spinster. Uh, I also, I mean, at 19, I was walking with a cane. I already got the vibes going. Yeah, the vibes going. (laughs) Oh, man, that's great. So why not? Take an old soul to the next level. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think uh, it's like Benjamin Button. Like you're going, you're growing backwards though. So it's like you're getting younger and younger as you grow. That's right. Older. I mean, it might be. It I might th- be. People think I'm like 16 all the time. I'm like, no, I'm a haggard 23. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh. <laughs> oh man, that's fantastic. Well, Haggard twenty three. I think I don't know how we I don't know how we go up. Is that from the title there. of the podcast? <laughs> I, I think so. Like yeah, you nailed it on that one. A Haggard twenty three. Uh, that's fantastic. So yeah, I think you know. On that note, I think it's a fantastic closer for us. It's, this has been so good, Abby. It's been fantastic talking with you as always. Wonderful conversation. Um, really excited to see more of your work uh, yeah. because it is beautiful. I love it. Um, so. Don't be yeah. so hard on yourself. We commend you, Heck yeah. and you're doing it. You're doing it well, and so yes. we, we old, old folks, really appreciate it because we're we're excited for you. Heck yeah! So we Thank really you. really believe in you. We're excited for you. Thank That's you right. So yeah. much. Yeah. And thanks yeah, for so having absolutely. me on the pod. Oh, you're you're very very welcome. Um, as always, thank you all all for listening. Uh, we love you. We're into a fantastic another year. We're moving into year three of the podcast. So thanks so thanks much. All, uh, for all the recent Patreon support. Yes. Every Patreon support we got stuff coming. To you, uh, gratitude expressions and uh, look for new updates. Yes, um, we're moving into a really important time where your support is actually mattering towards the sustaining of of uh, podcast space to record. And so, mm-hmm. um, if you would consider, like we, we say it over and over again, but a dollar a month actually goes a long way when it accumulates. So, yes, uh, share with your friends, follow us on Instagram, um, and like and share our page. Uh, um, and yeah, check out our, our our Patreon and consider supporting us. It really is making a huge difference right now. Yeah, so, so thank, thank you, you so all. much. Thank you so much for listening. We love you all, and we will catch you next time. Peace. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.